Chapter 36 Calabar, Abba, Lagos, Enugu These were the four Nigerian cities the Lord directed us to reach in the year 2000. We would start in January and February with Calabar and Abba and end the year in November and December with Lagos and Enugu. I sensed the harvest would be unprecedented. During the past year in Nigeria, we had seen the percentage of decisions rise to more than half of those in attendance. This was sharply above the normal pattern worldwide. We all sensed a supernatural harvest had been prepared for us, and we could hardly wait to get to it. There was a sense among the Christ for Nations team that all we had done until now was preparation for the time ahead in Nigeria. As we anticipated, our first meeting in Calabar continued the pattern. Our daily crowd grew to 450,000 with 1,600,000 in attendance over five days. We saw more than 50% of the crowd come to Jesus. The churches of that region were flooded with new believers. Abba in February was an even greater harvest. It nearly equaled Port Harcourt of the year before, with more than a million decisions for Christ. Again, that was more than half of those who attended over a six-day period. We had also scheduled crusades in the year 2000 beyond Nigeria. Between the first and last two campaigns, we scheduled meetings in India, Sudan, and two more in Ethiopia. Each was significant for various reasons. In India, for example, we saw only 6% of the audience respond to the gospel. The contrast with Nigeria was stark. This signaled a shift in strategy for me. I ordered the Christful Nations team to change plans for 2001. I asked them to concentrate inside the nation of Nigeria. For most of my ministry, I had opposed the old adage, strike while the iron is hot. Through the lean years of building Christ for all nations, the iron had never been hot. This had molded my thinking. I had exhorted believers again and again to strike, strike, and strike again until the iron is hot. I am a fiery evangelist, and I don't believe in waiting for everything to be just right. Jesus said, go into all the world, and so we go. But at this moment in our history, the iron had become so white hot in Nigeria that we could not ignore it. We would not be good stewards to focus our energies in places where the response was so meager. For the year of 2001, it was decided that we would tithe just one campaign outside Nigeria in Kinshasa, Zaire. All others would be inside the country of the greatest harvest. Preparations for this new direction began immediately as we worked our way through the remaining campaigns of the year 2000. After concluding the India meeting, we turned our eyes toward Khartoum, Sudan. Receiving an invitation from the Sudanese government was an important signal to me. Cracking the borders of any Muslim nation in the north of Africa was a knotted puzzle. Year after year, I had sent scouts to these lands. At other times, I had gone to see them for myself, praying to find a way in. 
But whenever I made these journeys, I never knew if I would be taken to the palace or to the prison. In one instance, I have been blacklisted from a particular Muslim country that shall remain nameless because I hope to return there one day soon. Years before, I had held a meeting there in an evangelical church and we had seen the building overflow for several nights with hundreds receiving Jesus. There was strong Muslim pressure against proselytizing in this nation. As a result, my name had been blacklisted by the government. When Sani Abadja lifted our ban in Nigeria two years earlier, it had affected the thinking of other Muslim leaders as well. I had been told by inside sources that I had been removed from the blacklist of this particular Muslim country. Sometime later, I decided to test the truth of that report. I traveled there on a tourist visa for a two-day visit. As soon as my passport was examined at the immigration desk, I was pushed unceremoniously into a holding cell in the basement of the airport. Obviously, the blacklist was still in place, or else word of the change had not reached the authorities who worked at the airport. In either case, the result was the same. I broke into cold sweat hearing those bars clang shut behind me. Before this moment, I had never fully imagined the way the world changes for one thrown in prison. Suddenly, all the rules and rights that apply to everyday citizens are stripped away. I was reminded of Richard awaiting execution in the Bukabu prison so long ago. What an inspiration his memory was to me now. He had been leading praise and worship and making music with those chains welded permanently around his wrists and ankles. For the first time, I felt a fraction of what he must have felt. I was suddenly at the mercy of those who wished me ill. This airport prison was the worst possible nightmare for a tourist. The place stunk, had no sanitation, no individual cells, no beds, no food. I was locked in a tank with every sort of malcontent. Who knew their backgrounds? Murderers, rapists, smugglers, terrorists, extortionists. They looked the part. Believe me, I preferred the palace treatment to the prison treatment without question. Ironically, the arresting authorities left me with an unfair advantage. My cell phone remained in my pocket. To this day, I wonder if it was a deliberate oversight by an arresting official who was a covert believer. Or perhaps God had placed an angel on the security staff to deliver me, as the angel had delivered the apostle from the Jerusalem prison in the book of Acts. Believe me, I immediately sent a text message to my booking secretary, Ilka, asking her to trigger our prayer teams to intercede. I also had her book a flight home for me as soon as possible. Then I asked her to call other African leaders who might be able to put pressure on the government for my release. As I continued to use the device, I looked up to see all eyes staring at me. No one else had a cell phone. No one else in that room could contact an embassy or seek release through such powerful resources. This was not the time to inspire jealousy in my cellmates. 
I realized that any of these bad guys might decide that I needed to be turned into the authorities in exchange for leniency, in which case my one link to the outside world would be lost. Or one of them might decide he wanted to use my device for his own purposes, and his purposes might prove more valuable to him than my life. I needed these men as allies, not enemies. One of the big unshaven thugs came over to me. He looked me up and down in my nice clothes. He asked in broken English, What is your job? I gave instructions to my PDA device and held up a digital image from the recent Abba crusade. It showed my preaching to the huge crowd gathered there. That is my job, I said. I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other cellmates crowded around to see the picture. I showed them the huge crowds in Calabar, Port Harcourt, and Benin City. They were truly mystified as to what a man of my station was doing in their midst. I spoke to them with confidence and moved among them without showing fear, though I felt it. I knew at any moment they could decide to overpower me and do whatever their desperation dictated. They might decide that an evangelist was worth more as a hostage than as a cellmate. Rubbing shoulders with these men in this place of cursing and brutality, I began to sense how our Lord Jesus was numbered with transgressors. The prophet Isaiah had predicted it hundreds of years before his birth. In his total obedience to the Father, Jesus was treated by the Roman and Jewish authorities as a thief and robber even being crucified between the two of them. This was Satan's ultimate attempt to make the Son of God feel defeated. To this day, the enemy delights in treating God's servants as the lowest of criminals. He especially enjoys taking their reputation for good and making it vile. However, even though this was Satan's most evil tactic, God planned that Jesus would take charge of it. It blessed me to remember that Jesus did not have his reputation destroyed. Rather, the Bible tells us he made himself of no reputation. He poured out his own life for us. He was obedient unto death. The scripture tells us that he even interceded for the transgressors who so abused him. In this way, He took all of Satan's power from him and used it for our salvation. Hallelujah! Jesus had died for those who killed him. But this is the mystery of iniquity. Somehow total humiliation and misunderstanding were essential to the ultimate triumph of the grave. This truth became a revelation to me in that cell that I shall never forget. To God be the glory forever. In the holding cell, hours passed in endless tedium. Twelve, fourteen, twenty-four hours. I was shuffled between guards to and from the airport restroom facility. Eventually, the guards took me from the cell to a comfortable office where immigration officials interrogated me. It was not the interrogation room of my imagination with a single light bulb hanging from a cord. Thank God. I explained to them that I was merely visiting their country as a tourist 
and have been detained without reason. I promised them that the German embassy would be following up on this incident. I suggested that if they treated tourists in this fashion, they had much to lose in tourism income. I reached for every straw I could think of to secure my release. Every effort failed. My name remained on their blacklist, and no higher government official had provided an eraser. What was I left to do? I waited for a reply on the cell phone, praying that my batteries would hold their charge. In the meantime, I looked around at my first truly captive audience. I tried to tell my cellmates about how I preached the ABC of the gospel. However, they understood hardly any English. It was no use. All I could do was wait. All night I waited. I tried to sleep on the floor, but sleep simply would not come. Mid-morning the next day, my cell phone vibrated. It was Ilka sending a text message to say I had been booked for a return flight on German carrier Lufthansa at such and such an hour that afternoon. I saved the message with a reservation number in my cell phone device. Then I went to the door and demanded to see a guard who spoke English. When at last one came to the door, I explained to him that I was to be taken to the Lufthansa desk immediately. I had a return flight with a reservation number. As might be expected, it did not work. The guards wrote down the reservation number as I had recited it and told me they would check with Lufthansa to see if I was indeed booked for that flight. Later they returned with triumphant smirks. Lufthansa had no record of my reservation. They had me where they wanted me. My heart sunk. In desperation, I pulled my last trump card and waved it, my cell phone. In their eyes, I could see shock. Raising my voice in anger, I told them that I absolutely had the reservation number recorded in my phone and had received it that very morning in a text message from Frankfurt. I demanded to be taken to the Lufthansa desk at once. As a German citizen, I would speak to the airline employees and prove that my reservation was valid for a return flight that day. Looking back, I believe that my mobile device really was a trump card. Suddenly, they realized that I had been communicating with the outside world and it was too late to prevent it. Perhaps if this fact became known to their superiors, they would face harsh discipline. They knew that they would have to answer to whomever I had contacted and I was no longer simply a detainee with no allies. That gave me a sliver of a chance to tip the scales in my favor. They unlocked the door. I'm sure it was not their intention to release me, but to get hold of the mobile device. I pushed myself through the door as if I was in charge of the entire scene. For what it is worth, when you are imprisoned in a foreign airport with no legal recourse, everything is a bluff. So bluff like crazy. I'm going to the Lufthansa desk, I shouted, and you are coming with me. I will show you that my reservation number is valid. I was already walking briskly up the stairwell. They followed me all the way to the Lufthansa desk. When I reached it, 
I saw a line of passengers waiting to be served. That line was death to me. I literally walked past them all, right across the baggage scale and behind the desk. The guards scrambled to catch me, plunged through an employees-only door and approached a ticket agent at the desk in the back office. I told her that I was a German citizen who had been detained without cause. I had executive status with Lufthansa and needed to confirm my ticket home in order to regain my freedom. The booking clerk looked at me and shrugged helplessly. Our computers are down, she said. What can we do? We are waiting for the repairman. Under the circumstances, this was not an acceptable response. I am not leaving this office until you turn that computer back on, I said. Turn it on and see if it is working right now. My freedom is at stake. The agent turned the computer on and to her surprise, the screen came up properly. She typed in my reservation number and hit the return arrow. The screen showed no booking in my name under that number. One of the guards looked at me with that now familiar smirk on his face. He prepared to haul me back to the cell. No, I shouted. You did it wrong. You entered the booking number in lowercase. You must use uppercase characters. In my heart, I prayed that I was right. I was grasping for anything. The clerk quickly retyped my number and hit the return key. Immediately, my full booking information came on the screen. I nearly fainted with relief, breathing my thanks to the Lord. The airport official said that they would take this information to their superiors. In the meantime, I would be returned to the holding cell. It was the best I could hope for. They escorted me back, and once again, I heard the sound of those bars clanging shut behind me. The final hours of waiting after confirming my flight were sheer torture. Of course, the guards did not come to get me until the very last minute. Just as the flight was about to leave, they escorted me to the airplane, holding my arms between the two of them as if I was a criminal. My passport was given to the purser on the flight and I was led to my assigned seat. I awoke some time after the flight had become airborne. The purser was shaking my shoulder to wake me. She was holding my passport, inspecting me. Who do I have on my flight, sir? A criminal? It took a moment to shake the fog of sleep from my mind. At first, I did not realize that I was now free and headed home. But soon the recent events assembled themselves properly in my mind, and I knew where I was. A criminal? It depends on what you call a crime, I replied to her. I am a pastor. I preached in a church here five years ago, and a handful of Muslims became Christians. That is my crime. She looked at me and nodded. I understand. Then she handed me my passport. I was told to give this to you when we landed in Frankfurt, but you can have it now. You look like you could use some sleep. Yes, and thank you, I replied with a smile. When she walked away, I closed my eyes and didn't open them again 
until we stopped at the gate. With this experience behind me, not to mention the memory of the tragedy in Kano, I was quite aware that permission to preach in Khartoum was not what it appeared to be. Obviously, the government was using our meetings for international publicity to show that they were accommodating the Christian population even under Sharia law. They were trying hard to win favorable national trading agreements and avoid embargoes. We were at least part of their meal ticket. The authorities had called our campaign an Easter celebration. This was an obvious ploy to avoid Muslim antagonism. But on the other hand, they had given us not only Easter, but six days to celebrate, just like a full gospel campaign. These were mixed signals. I honestly could not trust the government intentions, but I did place my trust completely in the hands of the Lord who opens doors no man can shut. What the government intended and what Jesus would accomplish in Sudan originated from two different kingdoms. The kingdom I served was guided by the hand of the creator of the universe. No contest. Still, we would be careful. We would have to remain alert to any treachery that might arise in the course of these meetings. The government offered the green square in the city center for our assembly. It was the main military parade ground for Sudan. It was a place where they could keep a good eye on our event. They did not expect a large turnout because the local Christian population was so small. They estimated that perhaps our crowd might swell to 10,000, but they promised they could provide security at this square. To aid in that regard, they insisted that our meetings be held in the heat of the day. They did not want to risk mischief happening under the cover of darkness. Stephen Mutua inspected the square. It had been beaten into fine dust by the wheels of military equipment and the boots of marching soldiers. On one end, it had a building with waiting rooms and reviewing stands for a few hundred spectators, nothing more. After confirming with the rest of my team, I decided that we would not take two team members of the same family to Khartoum. If tragedy did strike, I did not want to multiply sorrow for anyone, so we shifted personnel accordingly. I arrived on April 23 to prepare for the meeting. We had erected our platform and speakers in front of the reviewing stand. That allowed the VIP seats to be at my back, about 20 or 30 yards behind the podium area. If any of the government officials came to observe, we would seat them there. For the most part, I believe, the government thought that our meetings would pass unnoticed on the local scene and they would enjoy a sweet political and public relations victory. They sent their chief of national security to oversee our activities and to provide protection. On the first day, we saw 30,000 people assemble on the square. That was triple the number the government had predicted. A good percentage of the crowd was not Christian. I looked behind me at the VIP section. It was totally empty. The weather was unbelievably hot. 
it became quickly clear why so many Sudanese wear white turbans on their heads. It is a time-tested way of minimizing sunstroke. We rigged the platform with the sunshade. Even so, it was nearly unbearable, even in the shade. And as I preached, I asked the team to have plenty of water at hand for me. I sweat profusely in the heat, but the dry air evaporated the sweat almost immediately. This created a high risk of sunstroke or heat prostration due to dehydration. I literally took a drink of bottled water after nearly every sentence of my sermon. We also had arranged to have a lot of water on hand for the crowd because they would have to stand in the sun. We had positioned 50-gallon drums of drinking water all through the parade ground. After preaching and giving the altar call, only a few hundred raised their hands and registered decisions that first day. I was reminded of Louis Graf in 1922. When he arrived in Trunz, East Prussia, he had found all the staunch Lutherans unwilling to listen to his preaching. With that setback, he was not defeated. He remembered his lessons from Mary Woodward Etta. He had also experienced his personal Azusa Street in Hot Springs, Arkansas, years before. Under the influence and unction of the Holy Spirit's fire, he had asked, Is anyone sick in this village? My grandfather August had subsequently been healed of his tormenting disease, and at least three bonky hearts had opened to receive the gospel. And so my spiritual heritage had begun. In like manner, I began to pray for the sick after that disappointing first response in Khartoum. This had become my pattern everywhere. In Jesus' name, blind eyes open, deaf ears hear, dumb speak in Jesus' name. That first day, we saw many healings. I told the national security officer to prepare to see many more than 30,000 gather in the square tomorrow. I could see that this crusade was not going to fly under the radar of the local press and government. It was going to shake the city. God's ways succeed beyond all human ingenuity and manipulation. True enough. The next day the crowd more than doubled to 70,000. Behind me the VIP seats remained empty, except for a scattering of Catholic priests and nuns and the few Anglican, Coptic and Pentecostal clergy who had banded together to support the meetings. A few Muslim leaders had come as well. Again, the Lord confirmed this word with incredible miracles. In fact, never in my entire ministry had I seen so many blind people healed as I saw in Khartoum. They were healed by the dozen, day after day. Consider, when a man born blind, a Muslim, goes home to his clan, fully seeing, what do you think is going to happen? The whole clan is going to show up the next day and become Christians. They say, Allah has never done anything for us like this. Look what Jesus has done. The numbers of Muslims we got healed were so amazing that a few Catholic nuns and priests became troubled. They came to me afterward. Does Jesus love the Muslims more than his own children? 
they asked. We have many blind Christians who have not received their sight. It touched me so much. I said to them, you don't need to be a theologian to receive healing. Only believe. Jesus said, only believe. He did not say, become a Christian first. He said, only believe, because everyone can believe. So believe, trust him, accept him. You will receive your healing, whether you are a Muslim, a Christian, or a pagan. Jesus wants us to know that he loves all of us. One particular healing on that second night stood out from the others. I heard a loud commotion in the crowd and the young man was brought forward. He came to the platform, speaking rapidly and gesturing toward his mouth. I got an interpreter and learned his story. Working in the fields with his father, Omar Mohammed, watched a black scowl gather across the face of the western sky. Soon, a menacing line of thunderheads emitted a rumble that shook the earth beneath their feet. Father and son ran for shelter as a desert storm descended swiftly, lightning bolts piercing the ground around them like glittering swords. Suddenly a searing pulse bearing 10,000 amps at 100 million volts exploded through the atmosphere with 50,000 degrees of pure wrath cutting both of them to the ground. For a long time, Omar remained unconscious. When at last he stirred himself, the world had grown unnaturally silent. He wondered if he was dead. He saw his father's crumpled body nearby. Crawling closer, he tried to rouse him, but the angry storm had robbed him of his father. Overwhelmed with grief, he opened his mouth to unleash a cry of anguish, but his cry would not come. Not one sound could he utter. He had been plunged into the isolated and unreal world of the deaf and dumb. Medical diagnosis later confirmed that the lightning bolt had destroyed the vocal and oral capacities of his nervous system. The damage was irreversible. In one tragic second, his life had been ruined. The Muslim government of Sudan registered Omar as handicapped. The traditions of Sharia law granted him permission to beg for a living. They licensed him to sit on a busy street corner outside Khartoum University. For five years, begging had been his only way to survive. He was familiar to thousands who passed by each day. For those who dropped coins in his cup, there was a word to describe his condition. Kismet, the Arab word for fate. Kismet meaning Allah's will is unpredictable and one's fate is irreversible. The fate of Omar Muhammad was sealed as far as they knew. But what if God's love was stronger than fate? What if God had not manifested himself in that angry, capricious thunderstorm that had stricken Omar and his father? 
What if they should see a demonstration of the power and purpose of the Christian God over wind, weather, demons, sickness, and irreversible nerve damage? Would such a demonstration open their minds and hearts to receive Jesus? Omar had read an advertising poster for an Easter celebration with Reinhard Ponky to be held on Green Square. Five words leaped out at him. Come expecting miracles of healing. And so Omar came with the 30,000 who gathered on the first day. The multitude sang in eerie silence around him. He could see the preacher speaking from the platform, but despite the high-powered amplifiers, not a word penetrated his ears. By watching others, he grasped what was happening. When the evangelist made a prayer for all the sick and afflicted people, many of the blind could see and the lame could walk. In his silent mind, he heard a whisper of hope. On the second afternoon, Omar was there again, near the front. Once more the preacher spoke, following with instruction and prayer for the afflicted. Omar raised his hands with the others, reached out to a God of love he did not know. Then it happened. Bitter fate had once flashed from the sky and wrecked his life. But as the preacher opened his mouth and shouted, Omar would later learn that I was shouting, Deaf ears open, dumb mouths speak, in the name of Jesus. That moment he felt as if lightning had struck him again. He fell to the ground as before, temporarily unconscious. What could it mean? He soon knew, as he regained his senses, an explosion of sound burst upon him. Thousands of people were roaring with joy because of other miracles that were being manifested. Kneeling over him were several familiar faces asking if he was okay. Yes, he said. They gasped with a shock to hear him speak. He could hear them clearly. Over the sound system, Reinhardt was shouting over and over the name of Jesus. He leaped to his feet and for the first time since being struck down, words came pouring in torrents from his mouth. Kismet had been reversed. His voice was back, full strength. A crowd of those who had dropped coins in his cup surrounding him, shouting that a miracle had happened. He rushed with them forward to the platform, leaping and shouting for joy. The next day, 120,000 gathered to hear the gospel in Green Square. The day after that, 180,000, and the number of conversions grew to more than 100,000. Suddenly, the VIP section behind the platform was full of Muslim government officials, mullahs, and their friends. A few Muslim leaders began to complain loudly about Muslims coming to Jesus. Radical mullahs quoted the Quran, saying that those who convert from Islam should be killed. Such talk can quickly escalate into uncontrolled violence, as we had already seen in Kano. Fearing the worst, President Omar Hassan al-Bashir went on national television to defend our meetings, calling them 
an important example to the world of the freedom of religion in Sudan. We were on the very knife edge of catastrophe or of breakthrough. This was history in the making. On the final day, the heat was like a brick oven, absolutely stifling. I was having trouble enduring it through the rigors of a sermon. During my preliminaries, I waited in an air-conditioned room beneath the military reviewing stand. The plan was that I would go on stage at the last minute. To get to the platform, I would walk across an open area just in front of the reviewing stand. All of a sudden, the national security chief came running from the platform. Mr. Bonky! Mr. Bonky! Mr. Bonky! He was out of breath. What? What is going on? Outside are a million people waiting for you. I knew that he had been overwhelmed by the size of the crowd and he had exaggerated. In truth, the national security chief had never seen a crowd so large on Green Square. In fact, my men had done their normal scientific estimate of the crowd at 220,000, but officially registered only at 210,000 to remain conservative in our records. I enjoyed the fact that this government official had underestimated the power of the gospel to draw a crowd in a Muslim land that pleased me to the maximum. When it came time to preach, I made my way to the platform. Looking behind me, the VIP ranks were packed. Government ministers with their huge families of multiple wives and children, all clad in white, all wanting to be seen by the huge crowd, were seated there. I was surrounded by unprecedented opportunity. I called Omar Mohammed to the platform. In his own words, he described his accident and his miracle of healing at the hands of Jesus. He waved a certificate that had given him license to beg at Khartoum University and promised the government officials in the stands that he would come to their offices to have this license terminated. He no longer would be a beggar in their streets. I preached, and we saw the greatest harvest of all. The healing ministry was again tremendous. As I turned to leave the platform, suddenly I noticed that the national security chief had a phalanx of soldiers on the stage behind me, rifles at ready. They were not looking into the crowd, but searching through the VIP area behind me. Mr. Bonke, he said, we have made a shelter of soldiers' bodies. Go between them and bend low between the stage and the reviewing stand. It is very dangerous there. I could see that he was really terrified. He had the wall of soldiers escort me off the stage. When we began to run between the stage and the reviewing stand, they took hold of my hands on either side. I was exhausted and fell. They did not hesitate but continued to run, dragging me into the safety of the reviewing building. It must have been a comical sight. The Lord's evangelist plowing dust like a harrow behind a tractor. Once inside, I was laughing uproariously. I regained my feet, but they were not laughing. Stephen Mutua then told me why the precaution had been taken. 
The police had arrested three snipers with their rifles in the VIP stands. They were not sure they had got them all. They hustled us into a waiting car and escorted us back to our hotel rooms, placing bodyguards in the hallways. Whoever said serving the Lord was about dull seminary lectures, quiet study rooms, and sermons that put you to sleep? This was like a page out of Paul's journey in the Acts of the Apostles, a hilarious adventure. Our Khartoum meeting ended with 735,000 people attending in six days. We saw 132,000, or 18% of those who attended, register decisions for Christ. This was far short of the numbers and the percentages we were seeing in Nigeria, but Sudan was extremely strategic to me. It represented a great victory for Jesus in the heartland of Islamic Africa. Back at the hotel, I spoke to a government minister. Did you see how many came? More would come if I stayed until tomorrow. I haven't finished the work here. I must come back. Thank God. Next year is Easter again. He smiled at me and nodded. I had been in Germany only a few days when my phone rang. It was the ambassador from the Sudanese embassy in Bonn. Your sermon tapes and DVDs have become the number one selling item all over Khartoum. They have been pirated and duplicated and are outselling everything in our superstores, everything in the local souks and even in the media stores. The mullahs are calling you a holy man because you healed so many sick people. We are officially inviting you back for another Easter celebration next year. My heart leaped for joy. Sudan was not a catastrophe, but a breakthrough. The gospel was not going to be confined to a prison here, but welcomed in the palace. Hallelujah. The ambassador then asked to speak with me further. As you know, Sudan is facing great problems. Our greatest is the long civil war with the South. That is where most of the Christians live, but it is where even more pagan animists live and practice their religion. The rebel leader in the South is a Christian named Dr. John Garang. We have invited the ambassadors from all of Europe to our embassy to propose a solution to this problem. Since you have bridged a historic gap between Christian and Muslim in Khartoum, we would like you to speak to this group about what you think should be done. Would you agree to this? Of course, I will come. I was amazed that the government official would ask me to address political professionals about a political problem, not to mention the problems from a 20-year civil war. My reputation was in the area of evangelization. Political solutions were not my resume. Inside, I searched for the voice of the Holy Spirit. What am I to say, dear Lord? What would you have me say? When the day of the event came, I had received my answer. I urged Sudan to give autonomy to the South. Do not divide this great land into two countries, because this would create two poorer countries struggling with even greater problems. 
Bring unity by offering autonomy within the integrity of your national structure and keep peace by sharing power with your former enemies. Certainly my voice was added to the voices of many others, but I was thinking that Jesus had said, Blessed are the peacemakers. I can tell you, these people listened to me very intently that day. In a matter of months, the government of Sudan began to seriously explore these very reforms. Overtures began for peace talks with Dr. John Garang of the Sudan People's Liberation Army. To God be all the glory for whatever part I may have played in this positive change. The fire conferences continued to burn in my heart as they had since the first event in Harare, Zimbabwe in 1986. Next to my passion for preaching the good news, I was passionate about training and inspiring others to do the work of soul winning. In the beginning, we had considered the fire conferences to be continental, even worldwide in scope. We held the first in Africa, the second in Germany, the third in England, hopping from one continent to another. In the 90s, we realized that we were limiting God's plan for these powerful sessions we began to pair a fire conference with every crusade. These became a great benefit for the local believers, not to mention the follow-up workers who ministered and registered decisions for Christ each night. It also streamlined the work of Christ for All Nations staff as they combined their efforts for crusades with those of staging fire conferences. This change in strategy changed everything. Suddenly, our follow-up workers were receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit in mighty outpourings during the day. In the night meetings, they were now operating not in their own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. This greatly increased the overall effectiveness of Christ for All Nations. The conference sessions also gave us the opportunity to share information, insights, practical wisdom, and inspiration with the local believers, things that would not be appropriate to share with the evening audiences. I was happy. It was a dream come true. I thought surely we had arrived at our highest purpose for the fire conferences. But God does not see with our limited vision. One day as I ministered in yet another conference, the Lord spoke to me. I want one of these fire conferences in every church. Every church? I felt my feet swept from under me. I knew such a thing could not be done by our present methods. I was turning down hundreds of invitations to hold fire conferences in churches all over the world. There were simply not enough co-workers, not enough time, and not enough of me to accomplish more than we were already doing. I have no clue how to do this, Lord. How can it be done? By way of film came the answer, and then I began to see it. I would take the lessons that I shared over and over in fire conferences, fine-tune them to the point of excellence, and share them one time on film. The film would not be bound by our present limitations. Indeed, we could make a film series that would instruct evangelists in the lessons of an entire lifetime, not to mention 30 years of Christ for All Nations experience. 
In this way, every church in the world could experience a fire conference if they chose. It could be done. I was reminded again of Louis Graff. All that I could know of him before those years I was born had been gathered from various sources, pasted together to form a patchwork of information with many missing pieces. From my own imagination, I had filled in the blanks, but questions remained. I have never seen his face nor heard his voice. Still, his influence set on me the path that I now follow. His approach to healing as an accompaniment to the preaching of the gospel is a pattern for me. What great lessons might the man they called the evangelistic lawnmower have to share with me today? I will never know. I thought also of Azusa Street and the stories that still proliferate from that historic event. I wondered how it would be if the Pentecostal evangelists from that era could come and conduct a seminar for evangelists today. What would they say? I know that I would be the first in line to hear them. But alas, that day will never come. In these reflections, I began to see that God was offering me a unique opportunity. This film series could do what could not be done after Azusa Street or in Louis Graff's Twilight Years. Through film, I could expose another generation to the spiritual secrets behind our success. It could help them adapt to the unique challenges of their own day of harvest with a sure knowledge of our experience behind them. It would also leave a useful legacy beyond my own lifetime, should Jesus tarry. It turned out that someone in the Christ for All Nations team had the God-given talent and ability to shepherd such a project. He had been working with our film team at Crusades for years and already knew our inner workings. He had a classical education in filmmaking. Everything it produced was excellent, and he shared my heart for seeing the world come to Christ. Fluent in Norwegian, Swedish, German, and English, he had a multicultural mind with international sensibilities. His name was Robert Murphy, and he quickly rose to the top of my list of candidates. When I presented the film series to him, he accepted it enthusiastically. As we began to discuss how to accomplish the project, he opened my eyes to the intimate power of film. With a camera reading my every expression, and with a sensitive microphone recording my voice, I would not have to shout and gesture as I did on the preaching platform. Robert proposed to stage my teaching sessions offstage. I would sit or stand with a few of my friends and speak in conversational tones. The camera would look over our shoulders, so to speak, making the viewer a participant in the intimacy of the scene. Each conversation would be held in a location that would add impact and meaning to the lesson. Robert truly understood how to make a picture worth a thousand words. This is an artist's gift, and not everyone can attain it. The locations we began to discuss were China, Brazil, Egypt, Kenya, Indonesia, Australia, Japan, India, Russia, Germany, Brazil, the United Kingdom, and the USA.
In addition, Robert wrote dramatic parables and illustrations to enhance the main points of my outline. These would be performed by professional actors and stuntmen. They would entertain and drive home our presentation with all the modern power of motion pictures and special effects. This was a much bigger project than I had at first imagined. The budget grew large. Even more, it required a huge investment of my time and energy over a period of several years. In fact, ten years. But I had no doubt that it was a mandate from God, and I was soon ready to see it done. We had begun filming on locations of opportunity over the past year. I loved the quality of everything Robert was showing me. With each new segment, I grew more excited about the potential of this series. But it became apparent that he would need to leave Germany to be near the expert film community in America. This was the high-quality mark we had set for the project. It was decided that he would move his operation to Orlando, Florida, where he could take advantage of Universal Studios. You should move there too, he said. What? This project is going to go on for several years, Reinhardt. There will be many changes that need to be made to get everything right. You will need to do extensive sound remixing and dubbing in special studios. There will be green screen production for you and other special effect shots required. That means a lot of flying to Universal Studios in Orlando for you. Moving there would make sense. Robert, I've never moved anywhere in my life when someone told me to move. I move when God tells me to move, period. Besides, I can't just pack up and go. Frankfurt is home. I don't want to go there. I understand, he said. Pray about it. God will speak to you. As I went my way, the thought continued to return to my mind. God, is this your way of getting me to consider something I wouldn't otherwise consider? I know that God can speak through many sources, but he always confirms his word in my heart. I would wait for that confirmation. We began to feel the weight of the coming crusade in Lagos, Nigeria, long before it arrived. In a city with a population of seven and a half million and another ten million living within a twenty-mile radius, our scouts and team sent reports of crowds beyond any we had ever seen. The word of our return to Nigeria, after being banned for nine years, had reached a fever pitch. In anticipation, the meeting grounds were enlarged to accommodate crowds as high as two million. Sound and lighting equipment was double and triple checked to see that it would cover the area. We trained a record of 200,000 follow-up workers from the churches in Lagos. We spent a record of $1.2 million for follow-up materials. We trained 2,000 ushers for crowd control. The city came through with 1,000 police officers. I telephoned Robert Murphy to fly in from Orlando with film equipment to document what we now called the Millennium Crusade. We were scheduled for six nights of meetings. The opening crowd exceeded all that we had previously seen. 
It was well in excess of 750,000. The power of God manifested in many miracles, and I knew what this would mean. We were going to see the numbers explode the following night. True to pattern, the second night crowd exceeded one million. If only the national security chief from Sudan had been here on this night, he had run to me crying, Outside are a million people waiting for you. But that crowd had only numbered 210,000. On this night, he would have been able to see what a crowd of a million people actually looked like. I was staggered by it. On TV monitors, I could see our camera sweeping across a sea of faces that blended into the night at the far edges of the field around us. One of the sponsoring pastors came near to me. His face looked like he was literally in shock. Why do they come, Reverend Bonkey? Searching my soul, I truly did not know how to answer. My mind raced back 32 years in time. I saw myself on the streets of Lesotho, unable to attract more than one or two listeners to hear the gospel. I had not changed. I did not know then how to attract the crowd, nor did I know now. I don't know, I said, but I do know how to preach. Our sound and lighting equipment had been well tested. It delivered my sermon to the far corners of that crowd, and we saw a great response to the gospel. On the final night, the sea of faces stretched beyond the limits of my vision. A crowd of 1,600,000 people had gathered, almost triple the size of any we had seen so far. At the invitation, 1,093,000 responded and registered decisions for Christ. When they repeated the prayer of salvation after me, their voices sounded like the thunder of Victoria Falls, crying out for mercy to the Lord of Calvary. I listened in awe with tears streaming from my eyes as a prophecy given when we drew crowds of only 30,000 was fulfilled on this night. The cameras were rolling. A million responded to one invitation. When the numbers had been confirmed, I called Kenneth Copeland. As I listened to the ringtone in my earpiece, I grew excited. Since our meeting on Saturday, February 18th, 1984, at the dedication of the world's largest tent, the Copeland's ministry had become Christ for All Nations' greatest financial partner. They had invested millions in our vision for a blood-washed Africa. I could hardly wait to let Kenneth know that his investment had been in good soil and his word of prophecy had been true. Hello! What you saw with the eyes of the Spirit so long ago, my friend, we now have seen in the flesh. One million souls accepted Jesus in a single service. I was still trying to fill the world's largest tent when you spoke those words to me in Soweto. So many things had to change for this to happen. But over the years, the words of your prophecy burned like a beacon before my eyes, urging me on to art this day. Now, here we are. So what is next? Kenneth asked. Who can tell? Do you have another prophecy? God is not limited to this success. 
But I can tell you this. Next year, we will be striking with a white hot iron in Nigeria. Nigeria is showing the way. All Africa shall be saved. We ended the Lagos meetings with more than six million people attending over six nights. Of that huge crowd, 57% registered decisions. 3,461,171 to be exact. Our final campaign for the year was held in Inugu, a small city in the Nigerian foothills with a population of 600,000. We drew crowds of 200,000, with 510,000 attending over the course of the meetings. 58% of those attending made decisions for Jesus. Before our return to Nigeria, our percentage of response to the gospel had averaged around 20% per year of those attending our crusades. But in 1999, our first two Nigerian campaigns pulled that average up to 36%. In 2000, with four Nigerian campaigns included in the schedule, the annual response rose to 52%, with the change in strategy for 2001, in which we would be concentrating our efforts almost exclusively in Nigeria, the quality of our response was about to exceed all expectations. Christ for all nations was indeed rich gospel soil. Chapter 37 Our 2001 schedule began with hardly a pause for the holidays. We were back in Nigeria in January for the next crusade, with another following in February and another in March. Of course, each one featured a daytime fire conference. The schedule was dictated by climate because open-air meetings must be scheduled during the dry season. In Nigeria, it extends roughly between November and March. A word about dry season crusades. Sometimes it rains. I mean, I have pictures of myself on stage looking like I'm preaching in a car wash. Torrential is the word to describe it. In one case, several men came out with a great umbrella to shelter me. A sudden gust of wind nearly ripped all of us from the stage. The umbrella was more dangerous than getting soaked to the skin. I have learned to seek little protection. In the dry season, the rain is warm. These are not like summer rains in Iceland. These are tropical climates. I don't even bother with umbrellas anymore unless it is a gentle mist, which is seldom the case. Isolated thunderstorms rise and unleash inches of rainfall in a single hour. Most of the Nigerians come to the crusade dressed in their best attire. There were colorful dresses, high heels, suits and dress shoes, even though they must stand for hours in the dirt. When the rain comes, they continue to stand, their fine clothing clinging to them like wet plaster, and their fine shoes sinking ever deeper into the mud. I am reminded of the study published in the New Scientist magazine that rated the Nigerian people the happiest on earth. The reason was that they prized things of true value, things like 
family relationships above wealth and power. In that regard, they have also shown me again and again that they value hearing the gospel above comfort and shelter. Therefore, if the Nigerian people stay to hear the gospel under stormy conditions, that is my signal. I continue to preach in the rain. Our team watches the weather and we have certain routines for saving our sensitive electronic equipment. On one occasion, however, a bolt of lightning struck one of our main speaker towers and sizzled down the length of it, frying the electronic circuits of the entire bank of sound. No one was hurt and I was not affected because I preach with a wireless microphone. But I do not allow anyone else on stage when lightning is in the area. All the musicians and special guests must take cover in the trailers. It is just too dangerous to be near the equipment. When we sustain damage like that, it can be expensive. But God has given us partners who will not allow such a setback to keep us down for long. They pay for the repairs and we are back for the next crusade. Our early dry season crusades in 2001 were hardly dry in terms of results. Unless, of course, you use the term dry to mean spiritually tinder dry, in which case the spark of the Holy Spirit touched off a firestorm of salvations. But the most staggering statistic of all was the percentage of registered decisions for Jesus in those nightly crowds. 70% responded in Uyo, 70% in Oweri, and an unbelievable 86% in Onitsha. By the end of March, first quarter 2001, we had seen a total of more than 3.6 million souls come to Christ. I was absolutely overwhelmed beyond words. What did this mean? I can only try to give it perspective. At the very bottom it means that many more sinners were coming to hear the gospel than saints, and they were responding to the invitations in vast numbers. I do not believe that it has ever been seen on this scale in the history of the church. We were seeing seven or eight of every ten persons in those huge crowds come to Jesus under the stars of Nigeria. When this happens, an evangelist knows that he is operating in a supernatural harvest. I began to feel like I was reaping the end-time harvest first envisioned by the believers at Azusa Street. They were driven by the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Surely, if those pioneers had stood beside me on the platform in 2001, they might feel that this was the final harvest. That is what they had envisioned in their hearts as they spoke with new tongues and felt compelled to run to the ends of the earth in the years before World War I. My ministry was standing directly on their shoulders. In that regard, I recalled the words of Jesus when he sent his disciples to minister. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other labored, 
and ye are entered into their labors. Surely this was true for us in Nigeria. I was humbled to be reaping far more than we had sowed, and I was invigorated by this mighty display of the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon sinners. I do not know about the final harvest before the end of the world. Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the season which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Christ for all nations was simply saying yes to his call to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we were going in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Our next meeting was the second Easter celebration in Khartoum. My team and I were in a state of mere euphoria. It seemed that nothing would stand in the way of the vision of a blood-washed Africa, not even the barriers of Islam. We anticipated a huge response with an audience many times larger than the 210,000 we had seen on our visit last year. Reports were coming in that the tapes and DVDs of our meetings had been passed from hand to hand across the greatest land mass on the African continent. Throngs were surging toward our meeting site from Juba in the south, Darfur in the west, and as far as Ethiopia in the east, carrying the sick and lame. They were camping along the roads and the caravan routes, headed for Green Square, filled with an expectation of miracles. Then Satan struck. Eight days before the campaign, each Christ for All Nations office throughout the world received an ominous email addressed to me. Reinhard Bonke if you come to Khartoum, we will shoot you. It was signed by someone named Osama bin Laden. His fame had not yet been established worldwide, but we had heard of him. We knew that he was a very dangerous terrorist. I took the letter in my hands and fell to my knees. I feared nothing for my own safety, but my life was not my own the great harvest of souls in Nigeria could be suddenly stopped by an assassin's bullet in Sudan. The evangelistic lawnmower of Louis Graf had fallen silent before his time, and so could the combine harvester. Lord, shall I go or not, I pray. I dared not move from my knees until I heard the answer, and it came. You are Satan's prime target for destruction, but you are my prime target for protection. Go. Oh, we again took the precautions of our earlier visit to Sudan, taking only one person from a family and chartering our own air transportation. Stephen Mutua and the technical staff arrived first, setting up the stage and the great speaker columns to accommodate the expected great crowd. As they set up the equipment, the field was visited by many pilgrims. Some seemed merely curious, others seemed furtive. 
Still others were seeking places to place the blind, the lame, the deaf and dumb. Most of them were Muslims. Bonki is a holy man, they said to our team. He heals the sick. Yes, our co-workers replied. He heals in the name of Jesus. But it is Jesus who saves and Jesus who heals. As I arrived in Khartoum, I checked into my hotel room. Stephen Mutua came breathlessly to my door. Reinhardt, you cannot stay here. We must move you. Why? As I was checking in yesterday, I saw a group of young men from Saudi Arabia. Many of Bin Laden's recruits come from there. You already have his threat against you. We should change floors and move you to the far end of the hotel. We cannot simply suspect that every young Saudi Arabian works for Bin Laden. They may have come to hear the gospel or to receive healing. I am afraid not, Reinhardt. You are checked into this room under Christ for all nations. These young men checked into their rooms under Islam for all nations. They are here to attend the crusade, all right, but they are not here to receive Christ. Jesus can change their minds. I'm not moving from this room. Stephen, if they are up to no good, do you think that we would fool them for one minute? They have ways of finding me. I stay right here. But it might buy some time if they are uncertain of where to find you. I do nothing out of fear. We will keep alert, but we will not cower and hide in fear of the enemy. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear makes bad decisions, always. After settling into my room, I decided sometime later to inspect Green Square. As I emerged, I saw that Stephen had placed two local young men in the hallway. They were brothers, armed with what looked like World War I revolvers. If only my father Herman had been here to verify their vintage, I laughed out loud when I saw them. Here we are, like soldiers in a war, I said. But we are not dare devils. We are dare disciples. We dare everything for Jesus. That's all. He is our protection. But let me tell you, while you are guarding my front door, there is an entire terrace behind my room. They could access my room from that direction, and you would not even know it. The crusade was to begin in 12 hours. At Green Square, I saw the people who were gathering early. I also saw a large crowd that was being kept away by a group of soldiers. I did not learn the nature of their activity before I returned to my room to pray and sleep. Then I received a knock at the door. It was Stephen Mutua with the National Security Chief. They looked very worried. The government must withdraw the permit, the official said. We are shutting down the Easter celebration. You must go home at once. What about the people who have come from so far? I asked. How can you deny them? We deny them to save their lives. Our men found 13 landmines planted in the crowd area. There are too many threats for us to contain. This campaign is cancelled. It was with great sadness and disappointment that we packed our bags to leave. I hated to retreat in the face of enemies' intimidation. 
But this was out of my hands. The government had been God's instrument for opening the door to Sudan, and the government was his instrument for closing it. As we headed to the airport under military escort, news reports began to come in. The people were rioting in the streets. Muslims and Arabs who had brought the sick to be healed were attacking the police and soldiers for keeping them from Green Square. Some had come from hundreds and even thousands of miles to have the man of God pray for them. Now they were shut out and sent home disappointed. The army would not even let our own technicians return to the square to dismantle our expensive equipment until they had restored order on the streets of Khartoum. I returned to Frankfurt on Lufthansa. As our jet lifted into the sky, I looked down on the heart of Sudan, the confluence of the Blue and White Nile rivers. They flowed from Ethiopia and Uganda and combined in Khartoum as one great river marching on toward Egypt. My mind raced back to Uganda and the day I had stood at the source of the White Nile. On that day I had gained a new vision of the power of the gospel that was already beginning to trouble the calm of Satan's domain in Central and Northern Africa. Like this unstoppable river, it was sweeping the continent. Christ for all nations would be opposed, but the power of this salvation message would carry us through all obstacles and across the parched deserts of lost humanity that lay in our path. From Cape Town to Cairo, I had whispered that day, unheard above the roar of the troubled waters, Africa shall be saved. As we flew for our lives from Khartoum, I prayed for the day of our return. And as I prayed, my mind raced back to Kano, Nigeria in 1991. Riots, violence, Muslims killing Christians on sight, and us fleeing for our lives. It had been a huge public relations disaster for Christ for all nations. We had been expelled for nine years while our enemies rejoiced, and it had appeared that Satan had won. But nothing is as it appears to be in God's great plan. We must live with eyes of faith. Today no one needed faith to see the results of Kano. Without the tragedy and a nine-year exile, we would not have seen the crowds explode as we were seeing them now. We would not have seen so many sinners responding to the gospel. We would not have seen 3,630,920 souls saved in the past three months alone. So much for the so-called public relations disaster. My heart beat faster and filled with a new expectation for the African lands under Islam. Lord, I wait for your time for Khartoum and all of North Africa. You and you alone are Lord of this harvest in the name of Jesus. I had barely arrived at our home in Frankfurt when the phone rang. It was the Sudanese ambassador in Germany. Reverend Bonke, we are so sincerely sorry for this terrible turn of events in Sudan. Please 
Accept our apologies for the cancellation of this Easter celebration and do not think that these things in any way reflect the wishes of President Omar Hassan al-Bashir or his government. I thank them for this gesture. I trusted that it was sincere. In my heart, I truly believed they wanted to overcome the radical elements of Islam as much as I did. But we did not have control of the timetable for such progress and the harsh actions of the police to clear the seekers from the meeting site had opened age-old wounds between Christian and Muslim. If an agenda of change is pushed too hard or too far, there will be usually a backlash. The reaction can be violent and it will have to run its course. I thank God that the backlash does not last forever. On August 26, I preached for five nights at the Tata Rafael grounds in the capital city of Kinshasa, Zaire, which has a population of 8 million. This was the only campaign held outside of Nigeria in the year 2001. The percentage of those who responded to the gospel dropped to 46%, which was wildly successful by any standard other than the one most recently set in Unicha, Nigeria, with 86%. On the final night of the Kinshasa Crusade, the crowd grew to 250,000, bringing our attendance total for the five nights to 750,000. We tallied 350,000 decisions for follow-up, a glorious reward for obeying the Great Commission in Zaire. At the close of my final sermon, Stephen Mutua came to me while I was still on the platform. Reinhardt, before you leave, there's someone you should meet. He told me this as he escorted me to the stairs at the back of the stage. As usual, I was drenched in sweat from open-air preaching in the tropics. My blood was pounding. I was still a bit out of breath. Who might that be? I asked. A local pastor. He is from one of the churches sponsoring the crusade. Why haven't I already met him? We had a fire conference for local pastors. As you know, there were 20,000 at the fire conference. He could not get to you. Besides, at first we didn't know who he was, and we were skeptical. But now we realize that he is someone very special. We reached an area that had been cordoned off for private meetings. Even in the backstage area at our crusades, crowd control is still essential. We entered the area and there I saw a small group of my team members standing with a fine-looking African pastor. I knew instantly that I had seen the man before, but I could not recall the incident. He was familiar, but different to what I remembered. His eyes were large, brown, and shining with a brilliant light. His smile looked like the full keyboard of my old piano accordion, except that his keyboard had one golden key, a large gold tooth shining in the front. He wore a well-pressed maroon double-breasted suit with a silk maroon and gold tie. He was trembling to see me, and yet still... I could not recall our former meeting. He could not contain himself any longer. 
He rushed across the distance between us and threw himself to the ground, wrapping his arms tightly around my legs. Gone was his appearance of dignity. He could not care any more. He kissed my feet and wept with a loud voice. Bonky, he cried. I'm here today because of you. You saved my life. You saved my life. Who are you? I asked. I reached down and took his arms, freeing my legs from his grasp. Stand up here and let me look at you again. He brought himself up and looked at me, tears streaming from his wonderful brown eyes. He said one word to me, and then I knew him. Bukavu, Richard, I whispered amazed. You are Richard. My memory rushed back twelve years to that prison and the man singing in his chains. I could not believe the change. The country of Zaira had been called the Democratic Republic of the Congo in those days. Not only Richard, but Zaire itself had greatly changed. Richard, I said, last I saw you, there was no gold tooth, just an empty socket. You could not speak English. He went to Bible school and graduated, Stephen added proudly. Christ for All Nations sponsored his educational costs. For years now, he has pastored a fine church here in Zaire. I took his arms and pushed up the sleeves of his fine maroon suit and saw the evidence I remembered most, the burned scars from the shackles that had been welded around his wrists and ankles, shackles designed to be removed from his corpse with an axe after hanging. Yes, this was the same man, and now tears spilled from my eyes. I embraced him again and did not want to let go. Richard, what God has done for you, oh, what God has done. As I embraced him, I saw a vision of the real chains, chains of sin falling from the wrists of millions of Africans as they embraced their Savior for the first time. Such a powerful image of God's love, breaking the chains even in the brains. As I went to my room that night, I walked in a cocoon of joy. I was so glad that I had heard the voice of the Holy Spirit that day in 1989 when he had said to me, tell that man he will be set free and become a preacher of the gospel. One man among thousands scheduled to die. I slept so well that night. You could not have wiped the smile from my face. Sixteen days later, the world changed in ways we are still trying to understand. The name Osama bin Laden became a household word. Four American jetliners were hijacked by Al-Qaeda terrorists. They crashed into the twin towers of New York City's World Trade Center. Another hit the Pentagon. When the passengers on the fourth plane learned through cell phone conversations what had already happened, they rushed the hijackers of their flight, which crashed nose down into a Pennsylvania field. They gave their own lives rather than be used to kill countless others.
Around the world, the images of the towers falling and radical Islamists dancing for joy in the streets set a new tone for relations with the Muslim world. Our setback in Khartoum might well have entered an even deeper cycle of time, separating moderate Muslims from intolerant Muslims became an almost impossible task in the days following. Even as more time passed, it became apparent that every obstacle to the Islamic world would now have to be considered even more carefully. In November, I returned to the city of Ibadan, Nigeria, for a crusade and fire conference. By the final night, the crowd had swelled to 1,300,000. A total of 3,900,000 attended the five nights of the event, with 2,650,190 responding to the invitation. The supernatural harvest continued in spite of September 11. Our final crusade for the year was scheduled in December in the city of Oshokpo. As I returned to Germany, I realized that I had reached a crisis with my personal schedule. I would need to make several trips to Orlando, Florida in the coming year to work on the full-flame film series. It occurred to me that what my director, Robert Murphy, had suggested might make good sense. If I moved to Orlando, I could stay at home and accomplish these tasks without the back-and-forth trips from Frankfurt. The thought began to work its way from the background to the foreground in my mind. I decided to spend some time in prayer about the possible move to America. When I pray over something like this, I usually walk back and forth, pacing in a room. Spending a day in a hotel room, I paced so much I nearly wore out the carpet. Lord, should I make the move to Orlando, yes or no? What is your direction to me? Finally, in the afternoon, I reached a place of peace. I had no answer, but I had peace. Our trust is finally in God alone, in whom we live and move and have our being, as the Apostle Paul said. We may not know the answer to our questions, but we know the one who has all answers. Therefore, in him... I had peace. Finally, on December 2, 2001, I received my answer. Annie, this Christmas we will move to Orlando. She was silent for a moment. Susanna and Brent are coming with the kids from America for Christmas. They have already booked their tickets. My youngest daughter and her husband had already moved to America. Call them now and tell them to cancel the tickets. We will come to see them, and we will look for a place to live. Should I start packing? Yes, please, start packing. We will be in America within three weeks. I flew to Oshokbo for the final campaign of 2001. Upon arrival, Peter Vandenberg told me that a writer and photographer from one of Germany's weekly news magazines with 700,000 subscribers had come to cover our meetings. They were asking for a 30 minutes interview with me at the end of the crusade. I did not want to give them any such thing. 
we saw the writer and photographer from time to time eating at the restaurant in the hotel. These people have no idea about spiritual things, Peter, I said. Everything about that magazine is simply godless. As the day for the first meeting approached, we received devastating news. A young man named Sunday, a local guitar player and praise and worship leader, had been promoting our meetings throughout the city by putting up posters. He had been targeted by a group of young Muslim fanatics. They entered his house at night and in front of his father and mother, dragged him from his bed and began beating him with clubs. Jesus, what shall I do? His father heard him call as his assailants drove him from the house into a darkened street. What shall I do? He cried. Say, Allahu Akbar, the young man demanded. Say, Allahu Akbar. Jesus is Lord, he replied. These were his last words. They proceeded to beat him to death. Whatever terror or intimidation these radicals were trying to inflict on our campaign in Oshokbo, their tactics totally backfired. The news of Sunday's martyrdom rocked this city of 350,000. Thankfully, the incident was isolated and did not trigger widespread violence. We mourned with his family and friends and commemorated him during the meetings. We saw our crowds grow with a mix of Muslims and non-Muslims to double size of the city. By the final night, we counted 650,000 in attendance. After five nights of preaching, 1.6 million decisions for Christ had been registered. Back at our hotel, the writer from the German magazine was waiting. Please, Reverend Bonke, just give me 30 minutes before you leave. We are doing a main feature on you in the magazine. 30 minutes. I was still wired from preaching. It would be hours before I could unwind and relax. Why not take the time now to do this wearisome thing? Who knows, it might turn out well. Perhaps it was the wrong motivation. I don't recall inquiring of the Lord. Anyway, I nodded my agreement and we went into one of the meeting rooms in the hotel. I sat down. He quickly turned on his recorder. Peter Vandenberg turned his recorder on as well. We let the journalist know that we like to compare notes to see that I am properly quoted when the final story is published. Very good. Shall we begin? First question. Reverend Bonke, what is your opinion about homosexuality? I almost walked from the room. I knew that this was a trick question designed to cast me into the liberal or conservative camp of Christians. Actually, I belong to neither camp. With all my heart, I wanted to be known for demonstrating God's love to sinners. Somehow, I wanted my answer to reflect the wonderful demonstration of that love I had seen in Hamburg those many years ago. On that occasion, the homosexuals had come to attack the Christians for intolerance, and they had ended up in tears, repeating the sinner's prayer. I needed to hear something from the Lord to help me in this situation. In the meantime, I decided I could only stall the question. I thought your magazine was interested in doing a main feature about Christ for all nations, I said. 
What kind of question is that? Well, sir, it is a question many Germans would like to hear you answer. We have covered your meeting extensively, and we have much information about Christ for all nations. But there are things about you personally that people do not know. This is a question that is at the front of people's minds today. Churches are making statements on both sides of the issue. I would not be doing my job if I did not ask you about it. What is your opinion about homosexuality? This sort of moment is presented to me often. I am a preacher, but I am not happy unless I receive inspiration from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I stand to speak and I'm totally surprised by what comes out of my mouth. This is an exhilarating thing to realize that my intentions can be overruled in a moment by the urge of the Holy Spirit. This gift is not confined to the podium or preaching platform. It has often been manifested in private conversation or in an interview such as this. The question from the journalist had startled and surprised me. The answer that came from my mouth surprised me even more. Oh, I said, if I must answer for myself, homosexuality is against nature. How do you mean that, sir? Do you mean homosexuals are not created like other human beings? I thought for a minute. No, no, no. I do not mean that. In fact, I mean the opposite. We are all created alike. I say the act of homosexuality goes against creation. In that sense, it is against nature. It is against the way we are all created. Well, my mind works in pictures, you know. It's hard to explain. Then suddenly a picture dropped into my head. Oh, I said, I've got it, sir. When I need gasoline for my car, I put the nozzle in the gas tank, not in the exhaust. The entire room erupted. The photographer and Peter were holding their sides, roaring and shaking with laughter. They actually thought I had intended to make a joke. But I was totally serious. I looked at the writer. And he was serious too. Hey, wait, I shouted. Wait a minute. I didn't mean to make a joke. All I'm saying is, no car is built like that. And no man is created that way either. Next question. Back home in Frankfurt, one of the first things I did was establish a special fund to assist Sunday's family back in Ushokpo. His martyrdom and sacrifice had touched me so deeply. I did not want us to ever forget it. Helping his family in their loss seemed a small way of keeping his memory alive. Many in Ushokpo had been led to Jesus through his example. Of that, I was sure. The following week, we were greeted with a surprisingly complimentary 12-page feature in the German news magazine. I carefully read every page, believing that somewhere in the story, the writer would take vengeance on me for my comment about homosexuality. Surprisingly, in a personal sidebar at the end of the article, he told the story of our interview from his point of view. He told it accurately. When asked about homosexuality, he wrote, Reverend Bonke excelled by answering, and then he quoted my gas tank analogy 
accurately. I guess the unintended humor in my answer covered a wide gap in our points of view. Without intending to, I had created one of the most famous quotes. To this day, it can be debated if this inspiration came from above or was simply the workings of my own mind. I am happy either way. The year 2001 saw our overall results hit an all-time high. I preached to 11,735,000 people and saw 8,226,400 registered decisions for Christ. This represented an average response for the year of 70%. Seven out of every ten people I preached to in 2001 received the Lord. That was supernatural. By the end of December, we had made the move to Orlando. The processing and paperwork for the move was seamless. It seemed right for many reasons, both professional and personal. I would be leaving to get started in a matter of weeks. In the meantime, I could remain close to home and give serious attention to the filming of the Full Flame Project. Chapter 38 January, February, March The first quarter of 2002 overwhelmed us with three Nigerian crusades that saw 4,868,547 souls accept Jesus. The meetings happened in places few had ever heard of. Abeokuta, Akure, Ilesha. After finishing the last meeting and seeing to the follow-up efforts, our team took a much-needed rest. We had five months of African rainy season until our next meetings in Kisumu, Kenya. That meeting would be followed with three crusades in other Nigerian cities to complete the year. When I arrived at home, I received a message to call Brent Obanowitz. A few years earlier, Brent, my son-in-law, had moved his family to Virginia. He was the young man who had been engaged to our daughter Susanne and had traveled with me to Kano. After enduring that acid test, I gave him full permission to marry my daughter. Of course, I said that with tongue firmly in cheek. They now live on a country hilltop near the town of Winchester. As spring moved toward summer, he began calling me on a regular basis. The blossoms were in full glory in Virginia, he said. He told me again and again of the great roads and parkways in the national parks of the Shenandoah and urged me to take a few days off to accompany him on a motorcycle tour of these scenic areas. But I have left my motorcycle in Frankfurt, I told him. I am riding the Honda Goldwing these days, he said. Let me rent you one, Papa. You should try it. No, you know that I'm committed to German engineering. I have always been a BMW man, and I always will be. Yes, but you cannot rent a BMW. It's just not allowed, and the Goldwing is a fabulous road bike. It would do you good to try something new and different. I looked at my schedule with Annie, and she agreed to a few days of this recreational time for me. Brent rented a Goldwing from a dealership in Richmond. 
and I met him at his home to begin the ride. The trip was everything he promised. The gold wing was smooth and comfortable. The countryside was absolutely breathtaking, better than anything I had seen in all of my riding in Germany. My soul was truly refreshed, and I praised God as the wind rushed by me day after day on those two-lane back roads and highways. All too soon it ended. We came back to Winchester, and I turned the corner from the pavement onto the steep gravel drive leading up to Brent and Susanne's house. A few pebbles had dislodged from the driveway into the road. When my front wheel hit these pebbles, they rolled and caused the wheel to slide off the pavement. As I tried to correct the problem, down went the shiny, rented Goldwing into the neighbor's pasture. I was not traveling too fast, thank God, but the sudden accident left me no time to adjust. I simply rode it to a halt, and I got off feeling terribly upset. I had never had a motorcycle accident before. Brent came back to see if I was hurt. There was absolutely no damage to me, except for my ego as a motorcycle rider. This is another reason I still prefer the BMW bike, I said. Brent, is this motorcycle insured? Absolutely, but I don't see any damage. Surely I have scratched the paint. He looked the machine over from front to back. I can't tell that it had any accident, Papa. Well, you don't own it. The owner will see the damage. When you return it, you need to tell him that I put this motorcycle down. Okay, I'll tell him. Yes, and be sure to tell him I will pay for everything. Any repair or touch-up that needs to be done, I will cover it. Is that clear? No problem, I'll tell him. Back in Florida, I got a call the next day. No problem, Papa. The owner said there is not a scratch on the bike. I found that difficult to believe. Did he look closely? I'm sure there was some kind of damage. Well, he didn't exactly look so close. He didn't? Why not? Well, I told him my father-in-law put the bike down and would pay for the damage. As he began to inspect it, he asked who my father-in-law was. I told him that you were a preacher who preached mostly in Africa. He asked me your name, and when I told him, he stopped inspecting the bike. Tell your father-in-law, there's not a scratch on this bike, he said. He had tears in his eyes. I said, Okay, I will tell him. Thank you. No, thank you, he said. Ten years ago, your father-in-law preached in Virginia Beach, and I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Tell him there is no scratch on this bike at all. Well, that made my day, of course. It never ceases to amaze me how small the world can be. We never know when the unintended consequences of our lives will bless us right out of our socks. Sometimes it can also go the other way. As 2002 ended, I was forced by circumstances to cancel a meeting in Vukari, a tribal area of Nigeria near the border with Cameroon. We rescheduled for the next year and completed the final two meetings in Ogbomosho and Ileefe, 
the year ended with 10,652,000 attending our crusades and 73% of those registering decisions for Jesus. Another year of seeing the full bounty of the combine harvester. Plans for 2003 shifted radically. We decided that for the first time we would organize no crusades outside of Nigeria at all. And inside Nigeria, we would increase our schedule to reach more rural areas. We scheduled five campaigns in the first three months of the dry season and another six between August and the end of the year. It would be an exhausting schedule for me and the Crest for All Nations team. Some months of the dry season, we would hold two crusades in the same month. As the meetings continued, one after the other, each night we looked out on the crowds of between 200,000 and 800,000 people. Such numbers numb the mind after a while. So many salvations were recorded, but I was very aware that each one of them had a special story that may never be told this side of heaven. Likewise, so many miracles of healing took place, I could not possibly have known or shared them all. I am aware that as people read the story of millions being impacted by the gospel, their thinking may short-circuit. Numbers are too abstract. That is why God gave me the story of David Atta. He is one out of 11 million who attended the campaigns of 2002. One story that would demonstrate that each of these precious souls has a story of profound importance that ought to be told. David Adda had been raised in a Muslim home in Nigeria. He was of average height, trim of build, and he had a sensitive and pleasant face. Wearing wire-rimmed glasses for nearsightedness, he carried himself with the look of a man of gentle intelligence. Inside, he had heard for many years. An only child, his mother had died when he was a boy. He had never been wanted by his cold, stern father. Friendships had been few, but he had reached his limit. One day as a young man, he simply decided to lose his loneliness. He moved to Makurdi into a house with a group of students and enrolled as a communications major at the local branch of the Nigerian State University. He put a smile on his face and a warm greeting in his mouth for everyone he met. Soon he had reached his goal. He was surrounded by friends. He had lost his loneliness. Nearly four years of diligent study followed. The pain of his past was buried as he enjoyed the companionship he craved. When fellow students had trouble, there he was to listen and care. When they had financial trouble... He would dip into his own wallet and make loans. Some were never repaid. He would sometimes turn the loans into gifts. David became a rescuer. With such qualities, he became popular. Students, faculty, even the maintenance crew. Everybody loved David Atta. An evangelist came to town. David was invited to attend the meetings by a Christian student named Jonah. David had always believed in God. For him, the big question was, what kind of God is he? His Muslim family had taught him that Allah was absolutely sovereign. 
He planned everything before it happened. The best anyone could do was accept his fate. Allah wills it, but David had been fated to be a lonely boy, and he had rejected that painful fate. He was ready to receive the Christian God who said, You must be born again. He left the Christian language of new birth, starting over and second chances. By contrast, all the harsh Muslim beliefs he had picked up along the way seemed to fit the personality of his earthly father, unloving, unyielding, uncaring, the same father who had rejected him. The crusade sermon presented to God of love who had died for the sins of the world. Jesus revealed a heavenly father of love who had sent his son to die for the world. The choice seemed clear. David raised his hand and repeated the prayer of salvation, embracing Christ as his Savior. Now he sensed that his new life of friends and fellowship would last forever in the family of God. Soon afterward, tragedy struck. As he walked to school, a woman sped through an intersection near campus, striking David down. Police arrived. The woman was arrested and charged with driving under the influence. An ambulance took him away. David knew nothing. He remained unconscious for days, with severe head injuries, broken bones, and internal bleeding. When he opened his eyes again, he was in a hospital room. He heard a familiar voice say, You've been out for two days. Through blurred vision, he saw that his arms and legs were encased in plaster. His head throbbed, and it was wrapped in bandages. He struggled to remember what had happened to him. He had been walking to class. Suddenly, everyone was rushing to get away from a speeding car, but someone had blocked his path. He recalled that he seemed to be cut out of his body in an eerie, silent and vacuum. He watched his wire-rimmed glasses fly up in the blue. He saw his body somersault as if in slow motion, and then he heard the sickening thud of a car hitting him. Time had slipped out of sync in his mind. Things that should have happened first happened after, and things happened after that should have happened first. Now he was here in a hospital room. He discerned the shape of Jonah near his bedside. It had been Jonah's familiar voice he had heard as he awakened. They were roommates and were scheduled to graduate together. Final exams would begin in a few weeks. From the extent of his injuries, David knew he would not recover in time to finish school with his friends. His dream of starting a career in communications had been given a huge setback. How could God have chosen this time to decree such an evil fate for him? Perhaps Allah was God after all. He closed his eyes. Every beat of his heart sent a pulsing ache across his eyelids. It was like an iron anvil had been dropped on his chest. Each breath was labored and fingers of pain shot through his ribcage. He wanted only to sleep, but he told himself that he must awaken at 3 a.m. so that he could pray. That was the magic hour. From the dimness of childhood, he recalled the creed, We believe in what his messenger told us, 
that he descends to the near sky before the last third of every night and says, Who prays to me, and I will answer his prayers? Who asks me, and I will give him, as his buttered body gave in to sleep? David wondered why Allah would ask questions at three o'clock in the morning. Why did he not give answers? When he awoke again, the sun was high. He had missed his chance to pray. A nurse checked his vital signs. He decided to ask her the extent of his injuries, but as he attempted to form the words, no movement or sound came from his mouth. This alarmed him. He had developed the skill of expressing kindness and gratitude towards those around him, which in turn made them eager to help him. But the words in his head could not force any movement into his tongue. It was like the connection had been cut. He thought the bandage on his head might be too tight across his jaw, restricting his speech. But his arms were held back by the cast so that he could not loosen it. He struggled to speak to the nurse again. Forget speech. He tried to make a sound, a groan, a moan. Nothing happened. The nurse looked at him with sympathy and left the room. He began to feel strangely disconnected. Fear swept through his mind like a wildfire. On the bedside stand, he saw his Bible. Jonah must have left it for him. The sight of it reminded him, unlike Allah, the God of the Bible was always ready to hear prayers 24 hours a day. He would not have to awaken at 3 a.m. to impress him with his devotion. Perhaps he should pray to his heavenly Father after all, praying in the name of Jesus. But what should he pray? Would he pray for protection from harm or accidents? It was a little late for that. Would he pray for healing? He would think about prayer later. For the present, his faith was as buttered as his body. In the months ahead, the hard work of therapy began. During that time, a neurosurgeon from Makurdi General Hospital tested David's speech. He discovered that he still had marvelous language skills and was able to write. But David had totally lost the ability to make his mouth utter, even whisper, a single word. The doctor consulted the medical journals. He returned to tell David that this was a well-documented disorder resulting from a head injury. It was called aphasia. There were many different types of aphasia, but David's type was clearly noted in the literature. In the weeks of rehabilitation that followed, David gained the use of his right hand. He communicated his thoughts by notepad. The doctors and staff at the hospital developed affection for their bright and sensitive patient. They made special efforts to encourage him. They told him that one day his ability to speak might return just as mysteriously as it had begun. But David found it hard to endure that kind of hope. To him it seemed concocted by wishful thinking. He wanted a clear physical diagnosis and a true medical cure. Otherwise, he would rather not hear such patronizing lies. In the meantime, the hospital bills were real enough. They mounted beyond all reason. Nothing was given freely at Makurdi General. The drugs for pain, 
and the blood thinners ate up 215 naira per day, not including room and board plus medical testing. Within a few weeks his money was gone. He was sinking deeply into debt. The hospital required patients to pay for meals. He could not afford to purchase them anymore. To slow the rising flood of IOUs, he began to seek scraps and leftovers from fellow patients. People liked him so much they actually kept back food for him. He managed to get by on this kind of charity for a while. Meanwhile, his classmates at the university graduated. They became busy seeking new lives and careers. He had visits from Jonah and other student friends in the first days after the accident, but after spending hours at his bedside, they grew impatient. The David they had known was quick-witted and full of bright conversation. Now all of his answers had to be written out and he seemed to have lost his ability to bounce back emotionally. Conversation became hard work. In frustration, Jonah accused him of faking the dumbness. Why don't you just get over it, he said, and left the room never to be seen again. David decided to sell his belongings to pay his prescription drug bill. He sent a friend to collect his things from the house he had shared with fellow students, but when the friend arrived, his room was bare. It seemed his old friends had stolen everything. Perhaps they had sold his things to pay his overdue rent. Whatever the reason, they had not bothered to share their plans with him. He never saw his university friends again. This hit him hard. The new life he had made for himself in Makurdi, surrounded by friends, had been a mirage. Perhaps he was fated to be lonely after all, and nothing ever really changed. Old things did not pass away, as the Bible had said. All things did not become new. He began to plunge into fits of depression. With no place to go, no immediate family to welcome him, David stayed in the hospital. Weeks turned into months. One day a national television crew came and filmed the story about him. The local neurosurgeon described his case to the audience. It was broadcast nationwide and David's name and face was seen across Nigeria. The publicity was used to raise money for the hospital. After that he became affectionately known as the chairman of the hospital board. The staff and patients treated him as if he owned the place, but he had no illusions. The hospital owned him and every penny he would make for the rest of his life. Besides, he had once enjoyed this kind of adulation from his many friends at the university. He knew that those who pledged their devotion today would fail him tomorrow. One day, the neurosurgeon ordered an MRI on David's head. From the results, he suggested a surgery could be done to remove some scar tissue at the back of his head that was putting pressure on his brain. He said that this delicate operation might bring positive results for him. No promises, but the very hint of regaining his speech piqued David's desire. He was willing to risk anything for it. He agreed to the surgery, but the political situation in Nigeria went through a sudden upheaval. The doctor, 
who had been aligned with the faction that opposed the current leader, fled the country with his family. All plans for David's surgery were abandoned. Enough was enough. David decided to end the pain. He took advantage of his free access to the pharmacy, stealing a supply of poison. He prepared a lethal dose for himself. If God had fated him for loneliness, debt, failure, and dumbness, he wanted out. He would go to see this God face to face and ask him to give the assignment to someone else. He sat down and wrote a letter. He thanked the hospital staff for all their efforts. He made it clear that his death was by his own hand. In the letter he described the reasons that he would kill himself. Life is not worth living, he wrote. I will always be alone. Nothing matters. He placed the letter inside his Bible and laid it on the nightstand. Then he laid down. His plan was to wait until the ward was asleep, and then he would take the poison. No one would find him until it was too late. He felt a strange sense of peace with this decision. The constant turmoil that afflicted his mind day and night simply ceased. He later realized that the author of death, the enemy of his soul, cooperates with those who decide to help his evil cause. As he lay there, resolved to die, someone else had bigger and better plans for him. A beautiful girl with large, kind eyes walked into his room. At first David thought he was dreaming. She was not a member of the nursing staff. He knew everyone at Makurdi General and would have remembered this lovely creature. Can I talk with you? she asked. Her voice was soft and warm. She spoke with a steady tone that seemed rooted in the very earth beneath her. He wondered, is this an angel? He stared at her. I know you can't speak, she said, but they tell me that you write very well. He sat up and nodded. He took a notepad and wrote, Who are you? She came near and bent down to read his note. He could detect the delicate florin scent of her perfume. It filled his head with the idea that if he had no reason to live for himself, he might go on living for someone else, especially someone as lovely as this creature. My name is Rita. I am training to be a nurse, she said. So they sent you to practice on me? He wrote. No, I'm curious about you. I saw you on television and I wanted to come and see you. I have talked to the staff here. They tell me you are depressed. She reached out and picked up David's Bible. Are you a Christian? He nodded. I knew it, she exclaimed. So am I. Her smile was full and lovely. She opened his Bible and saw the note he had just written. May I read this? David froze inside. He wasn't sure why he wanted to give her permission to read his suicide note, but in some part of himself he did. He nodded and then watched as her expression changed to one of alarm. She looked at him, her brows darkly knit. You must never, never do this, she said. I want you to promise me that you will not 
do this terrible thing? David looked away. He could not promise her. He could not promise himself. He shook his head. She became offended and spoke sharply. Do you really believe in God, David? He nodded. Did God give you life? David thought of Allah and the Christian God. In either case, the answer was yes. He nodded. Then he will not forgive you if you take this precious life by your own hand. She was pacing back and forth, piercing him with her gaze. It is not your life to take, David. It is his. You will go to hell if you murder yourself, and I do not want you to go to hell. David wondered if hell was as lonely as his life. He took his pad and wrote, My family is gone. My friends have betrayed me. I have lost everything I owned. My education has become worthless. I cannot pay my debts. I am alone, and not even God cares. As Rita read this, she heard a voice speaking in her spirit. If you want him to make this promise, you must make a promise to be his friend. God was calling her to go beyond anything she had intended when she walked into this room. Rita spoke slowly, deliberately. God cares very much about you, David. He sent me to you today. If you will promise me that you will never take your life, I will promise you something in return. David could not believe she was saying this. He had never once heard anyone make such an intimate proposal to a total stranger. He took his pad and wrote, How can you promise me anything? You don't know me. You don't know me either. If you will promise me that you will not take your life, she said, then I will promise to stand by you no matter what. I will be your friend. No one can promise that, he wrote. This is not a promise to you, David. It is a promise I make to God in my heart. He will help me to keep it. But I will make no promise at all to someone who plans to kill himself. Do you understand me? In her words, David heard what he longed most to hear, a pledge of unconditional loyalty. But he could not believe that this beautiful girl, nor anyone, would live up to such a promise. Besides, Rita was of marrying age, and there would be many men who would want to have her for a wife. If she married, her husband would never tolerate such a promise to stand by another man. Promise me, she urged. He had absolutely nothing to lose. Could it be that God had sent this girl to break him out of his silent prison? He reached out beyond himself and decided to make her this promise. Taking his pad, he wrote, I promise you, Rita, not to take my own life. Sign your name, she said. He signed his name. Dated, she demanded. He added the date. She reached down and took the paper from beneath his hand. Holding it up, she read it again. Then she carefully folded and placed it in her purse. Taking the suicide note from the open Bible, she began tearing it to shreds. I promise God and you, David, she said, that I will be your true friend 
from this day on. The next day, Rita came to the hospital room with a prepared meal. She came the next day, and the next. She ran errands for him. She did his laundry. They begun long hours of conversation, she talking, he writing his answers. She treasured his wonderful way with words, so she brought three ringed binders to keep his writings in. Around the hospital, the patients and staff began to joke with David. Here comes your wife, they would say, whenever Rita approached. David was fluttered. He hardly deserved such a beautiful wife. His debts mounted higher. He decided to sue the woman who had hit him with a car. Rita helped him with a months-long legal process. At the end of the trial, a sympathetic jury awarded him one million naira in damages. He was happy to think that this would pay his hospital bills and provide for his continuing drug expenses. As the months passed, however, it became clear that the guilty woman had many ways to avoid paying her fine. Legal appeals and challenges to the verdict abounded, slowing and diverting the payoff. David's emotional state went up and down with a legal fight. Meanwhile, Rita was accepted to nursing school in Inugu, hundreds of miles away. She promised that she would not neglect him, but would return to Makurdi. In the meantime, she located a local ministry that served widows and orphans. They agreed to take David on as a ministry project while she was away. While studying in Inugu, Rita continued her conversation with him in letters, writing every day as the months of her schooling progressed. In time she graduated. Her family was happy and excited for her. They wanted her to seek work in Lagos or other more attractive locations in Nigeria. She would be accepted anywhere she chose, they told her. Since she spoke English, she might even find a job in America. But she refused to consider an assignment outside of Makurdi. I made a promise to God to be David's friend, she said. I intend to keep it. Her family members were not happy about this. They began to despise David. They counseled her that she had more than fulfilled her promise to him. She could maintain a long-distance friendship from any city with a postal service. Rita listened, but she felt that she must not leave David. The promise she had made to God and to David would not let her simply get on with her own life. She came to work at Makurdi General Hospital, where David lived. At this time, however, she saw that living in the hospital and waiting for his legal statement to pay off was crippling him. She urged him to move out on his own, to become independent. He did not want to leave, saying that he had no place to go. But she kept after him until he found a way to make it happen. He got a job with a pharmacy that had been willing to supply his drugs on credit. The owner had a one-room cabin that he could live in rent-free. Now he could begin to pay his own way and repay at least some of his debt. Rita continued to visit, bringing meals and encouraging his faith in the Lord. A fine Christian man began to call on Rita at her home. Her parents were pleased with him as a potential husband for their daughter.
She could see where this was headed and she cut it short. She told the man that there was no possibility of her marrying as long as she remained true to her promise to take care of David. David learned about this and he was overcome with emotion. He had nothing to offer her, but one day he wrote, Rita, will you marry me? She hesitated. God will make it clear if we are to marry, she replied. First of all, my parents would not approve. They are godly parents. They are the parents God has given me, and I believe I must have their approval and blessing. She became very thoughtful. David, I think when you talk again, this will change everything. I believe you will talk some day. David's heart fell. He wanted to believe that he would talk again, but he just couldn't. His trust in God had been fragile at best. Now it was broken. He continued to go back and forth in his mind between images of God of love and God of fate. Too often he forgot to count his blessings and he hardly ever failed to count his curses. He became someone who was hard to love. These were the longest years of his ordeal. His life became limited and defined by his disorder. Apart from his work at the pharmacy, much of his energy was devoted to endless attempts to collect his one million naira from the woman who had hit him with a car. All of her delaying legal appeals were finally exhausted. The award had been upheld by the court. All that remained was to collect. He collected nothing. He had the court intervene with her employer to attach her paycheck. About the time the attachment begun, she was fired. She recently took another job. When he discovered this, he tried the process again, and she repeated her pattern. In some ways, nothing had changed from the day she had hit him with a car. She was still avoiding responsibility. He was still being struck down. How could God allow it? How could he dangle one million naira in front of him, so close yet so far away? The woman declared hardship. If David had taken a hard line and had the police send her to jail, all hope of receiving anything from her would vanish. He was stuck and he became worn out with chasing justice. All his efforts to get the system to work for him were made worse by his handicap. He found few people, if any, who were patient with him in his inability to speak. As a final indignity, the government issued him a license to beg for a living. They too had given up. Meanwhile, Rita continued as always, checking on his condition, bringing occasional meals, running errands. She continued to encourage him in his spiritual life. She prayed with him often and took him to churches and crusades in Makurdi. She took him to Christian counselors, but he continued to struggle in his faith and his emotions, up and down, up and down. Eight long years passed. By now, everyone who knew David knew that his aphasia was a real disorder. Also by this time, David knew that Rita was God-sent, and he was totally unworthy of her. The example of her steady faith next to his wavering faith became unbearable at times. He found a measure of relief during those times 
when they were apart. I knew nothing of David and Rita's story when our team came to Makurdi. In February of 2003, Christ for All Nations held a crusade there. A large field had been secured for our lights and sound systems. We were prepared to see crowds of 200,000. When Rita heard about the meetings, she called David and urged him to go. She told him that in her Christian life she had never seen a miracle, but she had heard that many miracles happened in our crusades. Our publicity posters promised that I would pray for the sick, as I always do. She did not go to the meeting with David. For some reason she felt that this was something he must do on his own. Secretly, she was close to despair over his lack of improvement. David also felt desperate. He was coming to the end of his ability to keep his promise to Rita, and he knew it. Thoughts of suicide were plaguing him. Something had to change. Enough was enough. For one last time he would seek healing from God. This time he would not put his trust in the doctors or medicine. He would not seek help from the courts or the government. He would fast and pray, asking God to heal him at the Bonky Crusade. Failing that, he would find a way to release Rita from her promise. He would do that by breaking his own. On our opening night in Makurdi, 180,000 people crowded the field. Thousands of sick people came close around the platform. David stood at the perimeter and counted his chances of being prayed for by Reinhard Bonnke at zero. He felt lost in the crowd. At the end of the sermon, as I made a general prayer for the sick, he turned and walked away. He should accept his fate, he thought. God did not care enough to heal him, and he would never be good enough to deserve it. Bonki had faith for healing, but he did not, and God would not let him get close enough so that Bonki could lay hands on him. He walked home and sat on his bed in the dark. The clock on his table glowed with the hour, 11 p.m. He felt a trickle of warm blood begun to flow from his nostrils. He got up and found a towel to stop the flow. But it wouldn't stop. It continued for an hour, and then for another. He ran out of rags to stop the bleeding. As the third hour of bleeding began, he realized that he was dying. Perhaps his blood thinness had taken over. He felt he had one last chance to communicate. He had no telephone because he had no need for one. In the corner of his room was the latest binder Rita had prepared for his writings. He found his notepad and pen and began to write his last will and testament, leaving his few belongings to Rita. He expressed his love to her and his deep gratitude for her friendship. Now she would be free of her promise to be his friend, he wrote, and she could go on and find a godly man to be her husband. He wrote that God would surely take good care of someone as faithful as her. He wrote that he would be free too and that he was ready for his ordeal to be over. With tears and blood falling onto the page, he said goodbye, signed his name and dated it. February 3, 2003. He left the door of his room open so that his body would be found in the morning light. Then the young man who had struggled to lose his loneliness 
lay down to die. Another hour passed. The bleeding continued unabated. Strangely, David felt fine. Why wasn't he weak from the loss of so much blood? He got up and looked at his clock. It was 4 a.m. His nose was still flowing with a steady stream. He took his notepad from the desk and walked outside. The city was dark. Above him the stars filled the night sky. They stared down with cold indifference. If he had never lived, those stars would still shine on. If he stopped breathing, they wouldn't care. They seemed so much like the God who made them. He began to walk. As he did, he began to sob, his shoulders shaking silently. He had never felt more alone. If ever he needed his voice, it was now. He would scream to the stars, Why have you forsaken me? Why? He came to a park bench and sat down as dawn began to glow in the east. He still could not control his weeping or his nosebleed. Around 5 a.m., someone on his way to work found him. His voice was filled with alarm. What happened to you, sir? David realized that his shirt was soaked with blood. His face was a mess. This person would call the police. He pointed to his mouth and shook his head to let him know he couldn't speak. Then he wrote quickly on his pad, It's just a nosebleed. I am fine. Then why are you crying? David decided to tell the truth to this stranger. He wrote, It seems the Lord is forsaking me. Why would the Lord forsake me? Doesn't he care? How do you know when God forsakes you? The stranger asked. Suddenly David could see himself. He was sitting on his park bench because God had preserved him, not because he had forsaken him. He had been bleeding steadily for six hours, and he was still strong. He should have been unconscious or even dead. But he could stand and walk. He still had energy. He could almost hear Rita's voice saying, God loves you, David. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Those words from her mouth were so powerful because she embodied them beyond anyone he had ever known. He had no place to hide from God's care. He bent down and wrote again, No, I am wrong. God is not forsaking me. He has been good to me. I believe he will do something good for me. I must build up my faith. He went home and discovered that the bleeding had stopped. He cleaned up and went to work. David longed to talk with Rita about this strange ordeal. She was his best friend beyond all others. But he reconsidered. She had been through enough. He would finish this part of the journey without her. He asked his boss to call his cousin John, who was a Christian. He had moved to Makurdi in recent years and knew about David's condition. John agreed to come to the pharmacy. David asked him to go with him to the crusade that night. He told John how the crowd was so thick he needed help to get to the very front. He was determined to get to Bonki. He would also ask him to lay hands on him and pray for a miracle of healing. John agreed to help. David then wrote out his prayer request for evangelist Bonky to read. In order to verify his story, he took the medical documents and the government license to beg, awarded to him because of his condition. Surely, 
With this information, he thought, Bonky would be moved with compassion to ask God to do something for him. At 7 p.m., they came to the crusade grounds. David carried his Bible and notepad. Some of the crowd had been waiting already the whole day. Together, David and John pushed their way toward the platform. It was a long and difficult struggle. That night, as I began preaching, I did not know the drama that was unfolding with David Atta. He and John had made their way to the steps beside the platform. At the base of the stairs stood Jason Bettler, a member of our team. It was his job to see that no one rushed onto the stage uninvited. David poked Jason in the side to get his attention. He wrote on his notepad and placed it in front of him. I have been unable to speak since an accident eight years ago. I want an appointment with evangelist Reinhard Bonke. I want him to pray for me so that I can speak. Jason could see that David felt desperate. His heart went out to him. I'm sorry, he said, but there are too many people here who want to see Reinhard. We cannot make a personal appointment for you. But if you stay, Reinhardt will pray for all the sick at the end of the meeting. David did not want this. He wrote again that he wanted Bonky to pray for him personally. In his mind, he was fighting against fate. He saw all the people in the crowd as resigned to their fate. At the time of mass prayer, Reinhardt would pray over the entire audience and God would heal only those he chose to heal. David wanted better odds than that. He wanted to storm heaven's gate and ask, even demand, a healing from God. In his mind, if Reinhardt, the man of faith, would pray for him, this would happen. In this way, he thought he would break through the grip of faith. But as he continued to try to persuade Jason to make an appointment, Jason continued to refuse. This threw David back into a lifelong emotional pattern. The old pain of loneliness returned to his heart in full measure. As Jason refused to hear his request, so David felt God refused to give him access to his healing power. But on this night, David thought something in this familiar pattern had to change. Giving in to this self-focused feeling had only produced more suffering. He'd had enough of it. It was time to go a new way. He would go against his feelings and take a step of faith, believing that God still had his best interest at heart, even though he felt rejected. He and John walked away about 30 yards into the crowd where Jason could still see them. Jason recalls that David was wearing a bright red shirt and it was easy to keep track of him. After the salvation prayer, I addressed the sick people in the crowd as I usually do. I asked them to place their hands on the part of their body that needed healing. Then I began to pray. As Jason describes it, he saw David place his hand on the back of his head and immediately fall to the ground as if someone had cut him down. David experienced what Jason saw, but in a much different way. 
His testimony is that he laid his hand on his head and felt the warmth of a strong light shining on him from above. He thought it was a crusade field light. Something told him to look at it. When he looked up, the light shot down around him. It was so powerful, it drew him inside. He looked out of the shaft of light at his cousin John. John obviously did not see the light because he was looking at the stage as normal. David tried to reach out and grab him by the sleeve to get him to look at the light, but he could not reach beyond the light. He took his notepad to write John a note, but his hands felt too weak to write a single letter. He felt strangely cut off from reality. He looked at the other people around him. No one else seemed to notice the light either. He was alone in this experience, but he hardly felt lonely. He was alone with God, and he felt thrilled with his love. A hand came down through the shaft of light and touched the back of his head. It removed something. He immediately felt relieved of a great burden. The light began to fade, and he found himself on the ground in the crusade meeting. How did he get there? He felt confused and wondered if he had really experienced this light or if it had been a dream. He felt as if he was still in the dream. As he came more fully to his senses, he thought that maybe he had collapsed from the loss of blood or from the lack of sleep or even the previous days of fasting or from a combination of these things. John quickly helped him to his feet. What happened to you? he asked. David had no reply. He didn't even think of using the notepad. John went on talking, but David could not concentrate on his words. He was still overcome by the experience of the light and the hand that had removed something from his head. At this point, Jason Butler reports that he saw David reach to the back of his head again and fall to the ground again. This was the very same action as before. Once again, David experienced what Jason saw, but in a much different way. He said that suddenly the light came back. This time it was even more powerful. He looked again at his cousin John, but once again John did not see the light. The hand returned, touching the back of his head. Once again it removed something, and David felt lighter. This time, however, he felt another sensation as well. He knew that he had received something from God. The light disappeared, and he found himself on the ground. John helped him to his feet. He seemed baffled and just a bit angry. The crowd was surging all around them. People were praying intently with their hands raised. Who pushed you down, David? he asked. Who did this to you? David looked at John, and for the first time in eight years, a word in his head found the power to make his mouth respond. Jesus, he rasped. John's jaw dropped. He stared. Did you say something? Jesus, David repeated. He felt like he was glowing. 
It never entered his heart to say any other word than the precious name of the Son of God, Jesus. John gasped, David, I heard you. Jesus, 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 David repeated. He began to walk around saying it. It was a hoarse whisper, but it was a miracle. He stopped and looked at his cousin again, taking him by the shoulders. Thank you, John, he said. John grabbed him in a bear hug. God has healed my cousin, he screamed to the people around him. God has healed him. He can, for the first time in eight years, he can talk. From the stage, I had asked those who had received healing to approach the platform. I wanted to share with that vast crowd what God had done that night. John rushed with David back to where Jason Bettler stood. He told him that David had been unable to speak for eight years since his accident. Now he was able to talk. Jesus, David repeated, tears streaming from his eyes. Jesus. Jason took him with John up the steps to meet me on the platform. Once again, John explained the background to David's story. I spoke to the crowd. This man, named David Utter, has not been able to speak for eight years, I said. There was a stir across the audience. I did not know that David was well known to many people in Makurdi. Some recognized him. I placed the microphone near to his mouth. Let's hear David do something he has not done for eight years, I said. Count with me, David. Say one. One, David rasped. Two, two, he repeated, three, three, four, four. Suddenly David dropped to his knees, weeping with gratitude. He was simply overcome and did not have any idea how to thank God for his great gift of healing. In November, we returned to hold a campaign at Nevi, another city in the Delta region of the Niger River. David came to see us. He was beaming from ear to ear and spoke fluently, now in a full voice. I invited him to the platform to tell his story to the crowd of 400,000. He gladly did so. Later he told us that the strength of his voice continued to return after the Makurdi crusade. However, when his voice grew tired, he still lapsed into a whisper. In December we returned to worry another city in the Niger Delta near the coast. David came again, and this time no one could stop him from talking. His face bore a new light. He introduced us to a beautiful young woman named Rita, his fiancée, he said. Seeing her, we could easily understand his joy. I asked my team to take them both aside and record their story. That is when I learned that after his healing, Rita took David to see her parents. Rita's mother met him at the door. She knew David well, and she was not happy to see him. Hello, mother, he said to her, his face breaking into a wonderful smile. Rita's mother's eyes grew wide. Her hands flew to her cheeks. David, did you speak? Jesus healed me, he said. God is so good. Rita asked her stunned mother if she could invite David inside. Her mother nodded. 
So many emotions were hiding behind her blank stare. Shock, anger, frustration, resentment, confusion. And those feelings were made worse by a sense of guilt for having felt those things toward David, someone God had obviously loved so much. Rita knew what to do next. She led David by the hand into her house and to her bedroom. There she had a bookshelf. It was full of eight years of conversations bound in notebooks. Until now, they had been her treasures. She began to pile the notebooks into his outstretched arms. She loaded her mother's arms too. When the shelf was empty, she led them to the back door and out into the yard. A large barrel was placed there. She took the notebooks one by one and began dropping them into the barrel. Then she doused them with gasoline and tossed in a match. As the books went up in flames, a flood of tears released from her soul. She took David in her embrace. I want to hear you talk, David, Rita said. I'm talking, he said. But never stop. Don't ever stop talking to me, David. Promise me. I promise, he said. Today, Mr. and Mrs. David Atta have completed Bible college in preparation for a lifetime of ministry. David's healing has become widely known in Nigeria's medical circles, as well as in most churches in that region of Africa. David and Rita travel together and never miss an opportunity to tell what God has done for them. They are just one of the millions of stories behind the mind-numbing statistics of this great harvest. So, whose story is it? It is the story of David's healing and of Rita's promise and more. It is the story of God's love for Africa. His love enables each of us to witness to his saving grace and also to his healing power. May God receive all the glory. In telling her story, I was struck to hear Rita say that before David was healed, she had never seen a miracle. I would have to disagree. For eight years, she became a human mirror of God's love. That, too, was a miracle and a story worth telling. Chapter 39 as the Nigerian campaigns continued and intensified in the next few years, I sensed the Lord leading me to tithe one crusade per year outside of Nigeria. Meetings were scheduled in New Guinea, Sudan, Romania and India. As we continued to see the harvest in Nigeria, I especially began to anticipate our return to Sudan in 2006. We had scheduled a July series of meetings in the southern city of Juba. This was the heart of the area that had been cut off from the world by civil war for more than two decades. The circumstances of our return were very special and dear to my heart. After our initial Easter celebrations in the northern capital of Khartoum, which had begun well but ended badly, the government had implemented every reform I had suggested. In a strategic meeting with the embassy heads of Europe, I had urged that the North give autonomy to the South 
and enter into a power-sharing agreement. They had done exactly that. In the years that followed, they had made the former rebel leader, Dr. John Garang, the first Christian vice president of the nation, sharing power with the Muslim norm. He made a triumphal entry into the capital city of Khartoum in January of 2005. Live on national television, he had signed the new constitution with al-Bashir sealing the union of North and South. All of Sudan broke out in rejoicing. I congratulate the Sudanese people, Garang said. This is not my peace or the peace of al-Bashir. It is the peace of the Sudanese people. At last the long civil war had ended. But tragically, Garang was killed seven months later in a helicopter crash. Rumors of sabotage abounded. Like the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the conspiracy theories would not fade. As long as Garang had been a rebel leader, he had been beyond reach of al-Bashir, his follower said. As vice president, he had finally become vulnerable, and many believed that the government's hand was behind the so-called accident. Sudan's hard-won peace had become fragile again. Armed rebel militias began rattling their swords. Would-be strongmen emerged to try to claim leadership in the power vacuum. Miraculously, the power-sharing agreement with Khartoum held, and a new leader, Salva Kerr, was selected in Juba to represent the South. In fact, as our meeting in the southern capital drew near, President George W. Bush met with Salva Kerr in Washington, D.C., to visibly lend America strength and approval to the struggling new government. I felt an urgency in the spirit telling me that the time had come to go to the south of Sudan with a gospel campaign. We scheduled July meetings in Juba. Nothing about the trip was ordinary. Great safety precautions were taken, some nearly as deadly as the dangers they tried to avoid. We acquired visas through an exile group in Nairobi, Kenya. They were very sensitive, believing that Garang's helicopter crash had been caused by a ground-to-air missile. They arranged for us to fly at high altitude to avoid being targeted. In retrospect, this was nearly a fatal precaution. In the meantime, our ground crew had discovered a small number of air-conditioned shipping containers. They were able to rent them for our accommodation, for which I was grateful. There was not one suitable hotel in Juba. They had also contracted an armed security force to patrol our meeting site to deter violence. As I and several others were flown to the meeting site, our private plane was not pressurized. It flew high to avoid missiles and did not have an auxiliary oxygen supply for passengers. We quickly developed terrible headaches and became disorientated before we knew it. When I walked off that plane on unsteady legs, I knew that I never wanted to endure another flight like it again. It was more adventure than I had bargained for. I made sure that our return flight was properly equipped and handled for the safety of the passengers. The meetings in Juba were historic. I was so glad that I came. People streamed across the desert roads and trails 
to that primitive city from hundreds of miles around. In five days of preaching in a city of 160,000, we saw our nightly crowd grow to 120,000. In total, we registered 243,532 decisions for Jesus. I could see the spiritual darkness and despair lift over that city and feel the tense atmosphere become warm and relaxed. It remains a dangerous place with many problems to solve, but Cuba today has a quarter million more souls that belong to Jesus, and the sheer weight of their goodness will make a difference in the years to come. To God be all the glory. I rode in a caravan of ministry vehicles to a land time for God. We had at last come to the kingdom of Bukhari, one of the most remote areas in Nigeria. As we drew near our destination, I saw a welcoming tent nearby. The banners of the local kingdom were flying in the breeze. John Daku, my crusade director for the region, told me that I would be welcomed by the king of the land of Fukari upon arrival. The king would also appear on the platform with me on the opening night to officially welcome the crowd. But first, he had gathered all of his sub-chiefs and tribal leaders for a special greeting. I was reminded that I had been forced to cancel this campaign twice in previous years due to circumstances beyond my control. I hoped that the people of Vukari did not feel slighted. The kingdom was one of hundreds of small agricultural societies scattered across the vast inland region of central Nigeria. Many of these would never see the visit of an evangelist in their lifetime. Christful nations had mapped these regions and we were doing our best to reach them in a deliberate strategy to see all of Nigeria presented with the gospel. Our cars bumped to a stop in the dirt near the tent. There we stopped and let the dust clear. I could see that a hundred or so guests had gathered in the shade of the tent to await my arrival. A large throne reserved for the king had been positioned in the middle of the group with lesser thrones arranged on either side. I smiled to myself as I opened the door to get out. How many forms of government had greeted me as an evangelist across the various areas of Africa? I had been welcomed by city governments, counties, states, nations. But all of these had arisen from this more ancient form of rule, the tribal kingdom. I felt honored and privileged by God to extend his message of salvation, not only across national borders, but in a sense, back in time to places like Bukhari, mired in the past and cut off from the modern world. As I approached the tent, the king solemnly rose from his throne and approached me, dressed in all of his ceremonial robes and headdress. I could see that he carried a large silver-serving tray in his hands. This was certainly unusual. Perhaps it was a gift for me, or for any. What could it be? As we came together, I saw, to my amazement, that the silver tray was filled with dirt. It looked like someone had stuck a spade into the ground and unloaded it onto this fancy silver platter. 
standing beside the king with an interpreter who would translate his message and my replies. I was very glad to see him because my curiosity was certainly piqued. He placed the tray in my hands. I felt overwhelmed and unworthy, the way I had felt when Rudolf Kleinbaum had placed his life savings in my hands. This king was making himself completely vulnerable in this gesture. When he placed the symbol of his land in my hands, he actually was placing his very kingdom in my hands. As long as I held this tray of dirt, he was officially no longer king. In these agricultural kingdoms, the king and the land were inseparable, both spiritually and materially. The king was the land, and the land was the king. The people were totally dependent on them for life and livelihood. If drought occurred, the king was to blame. If the land yielded abundant crops, the king received the glory. These links between the king and his land are seen in the Old Testament through the tribal history of Israel. Of course, the history of Israel provided the backdrop for the kingdom of the king of kings, who would redeem not only the people and their land, but would die for the sins of the whole world. I gazed down at the tray of dirt. In my mind I saw a vision. A single drop of blood fell from the old rugged cross. It splashed into the dust on that tray and was soon absorbed by the soil, becoming one with it. I will break the curse on your land, O king, I said. I closed my eyes, asking God for the words he would have me to say. When I have traveled to these remote cultures, I sometimes have the impression especially when I am told that I am the first evangelist to come, that the satanic infrastructure has never been challenged. Satan has often exercised total dominion over the people through sickness, drought, insanity, and many bondages of fear, superstition, and idolatry. When I preach the gospel, I can feel these curses break. The light of the gospel shines into the darkness and overcomes it. I have often heard reports from sorcerers after my meeting saying that when the gospel is preached, the spirits become dumb, the ancestors fall silent. They no more speak to us, they say. That does not surprise me. Jesus paid the price for all of it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I held the tray of dirt up and began my prayer. I broke the stranglehold of Satan over that king's land and his people. I broke the shaman's curses, family curses, ancestral curses, traditional curses, and all that accompanied such defilement. I prayed total success upon our meetings. When I finished, I praised God and handed the land of Ukari back to its rightful king. When on the platform that night an interesting thing happened. We looked across a crowd of 200,000. Sitting beside me, the king leaned over and said in a voice filled with awe, Reverend Bonky, I did not know there were this many people in all of my kingdom. The Lord gave me the words to reply. 
what you are seeing, honorable king, is not your kingdom. He gave me a penetrating look, not sure whether to be insulted or alarmed. You gave me your kingdom on a tray of dirt. Jesus has broken the curse. What you see tonight is the kingdom of God. We are now building his kingdom, you and I. He nodded and turned again to look at the crowd. Indeed, all curses were broken over Bukhari. God swept the place with mighty signs and wonders. In five nights, 455,140 subjects from the kingdom of Bukhari crossed over and entered the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. As I reflect on these things, I will never forget the weight of that tray of dirt in my hands. It was too wonderful for me, too much for me to handle. But one precious drop of his blood was more than enough. Wukari will never be the same. In May of 2007, I held a fire conference at the National Exhibition Center in Birmingham, England. Robert Murphy had completed the gigantic task of producing our evangelistic film series called Full Flame. I was at the booth autographing the DVD boxes and books and anything that the people wanted me to sign. It seemed to me that the line was a mile long around the hall and everyone had something to tell me. Some had got saved in my meetings, some had received healings, Others had entered the harvest as evangelists after attending one of our fire conferences, meeting people whose lives have been changed through Christful nations is like taking a shower in a fountain of blessing. A black gentleman stood before me smiling, eyes sparkling. I am Clovis Mafike, he said. Do you remember me? Well, it has been a long road. I can remember some people vividly. Others not at all. I looked at him and did not fully recognize him, but something about him seemed familiar. I told him so. I was just a boy in Maseru, he said. I came to your home and accepted Jesus. For many years now, I've been a pastor. My work today is with the congregation here in the United Kingdom. My mind flashed back 40 years to the three dead churches I had encountered when I first arrived in Lesotho, their religion had gone astray. It had become stale and stagnant. I had turned from the stench of it to find new hearts in which to plant the seed of the word. Young people seemed more receptive to the working of the Spirit, and so I had started a youth meeting once a week in my home. Here, all of these years later, I could see that God's word had not returned void. I stood and shook his hand. Clovis, you've blessed me more than I can say. Thank you so very much for coming and telling me your story. May God multiply everything you do for his kingdom. I'm so blessed to meet you. Immediately, other memories came back to me. Our house had a corrugated tin roof. When it rained, it rung and roared like a fire alarm. I can still hear the sound of water pouring to the earth from that roof. After one of our youth meetings in the living room in Lesotho, Annie had noticed that the coffee table was sprinkled with water droplets. But these were not from the rain. Those young people 
who have bowed their heads over that table, one of them, Clovis Mafike, had really met God in our living room. Their hearts had been touched and torn open by the Spirit of God. From that day forward, we had called that coffee table our table of tears. How many others had made it there? How many had I forgotten? God is so good to bring one back to remind me. This was a reward beyond my ability to express it. Part 8. New Horizons Dear Father, today I see a harvest stretching beyond the horizon. How do I conclude a story that has no end? Chapter 40 I began writing this book with a prayer. Lord, which thread should I choose? There are so many. Flooded with stories of God's hand in my life, I did not trust myself to choose the right one. God answered showing me that the coming of Louis Graff to the Bonky household in 1922 was the thread that would pass through the eye of the needle. And so I began. Now, as I write this final chapter, I find myself praying again. In my mind's eye, I see many events, places, people, and encounters I have left out of this book. All of them are worth including here. How can I fail to write of the faithful friends and mission partners who have helped me travel this road, supporters, intercessors, donors? Many of them have been with us from day one. I know in my heart that each and every one of them has played his or her part in the magnificent work that God has done and will continue to do so through Christ for all nations. What a blessing to know that God has placed these people alongside me. I see committed co-workers who have carried the fire with me over the years. They've taken up my vision, made it their own, and tirelessly helped ensure the fulfillment of the Lord's word to me about a full heaven and an empty hell. Their commitment has not been without cost. Back home, their families have often been under attack during our campaigns. Each of them deserves a chapter of their own. I think of my most faithful companion, Peter Vandenberg, who had three cervical vertebrae broken in a terrible accident. There was doubt about whether he would walk again, but intercessors around the world were mobilized, and a few weeks later he had recovered fully. Andrew Colby, my personal assistant, was on a motorcycle when a car crashed straight into him from the side. I saw him lying lifeless on the road and cried out to God. When I opened my eyes, suddenly there he was, standing in front of me without so much as a scratch. I see other members of the team who left us because the Lord called them to set up their own ministries. People like Suzette Hatting, for example, a mighty woman of God. God has blessed us with men and women of his character. All stories worth telling. And what is the famous proverb? Behind every strong man there is a strong woman. If that applies to anyone, it certainly applies to me. A smile spreads over my face as I think of my wonderful wife, Annie. 
like no other person on earth. She has motivated, invigorated, encouraged, and helped me over and over again to keep my eyes on the goal ahead and on what is really important. And I see my children, their spouses, and my grandchildren. What a gift they have been through the years, and what a wealth of wonderful things I have experienced with them. My greatest joy is that they are all following the Lord. A flood of ministry moments now rush through my memory. People who have been healed and set free. Bonfires as witchcraft items are burned in huge oil drums. Crutches and wheelchairs passed forward to the platform over the people's heads. Laughing faces full of joy. People saved and set free, snatched from the claws of satanic bondage and welcomed into the glorious kingdom of our Lord Jesus. As I write, I see three small blind children. In response to my prayer during an evangelistic campaign, all three received their sight in a split second at the same moment. What indescribable joy! I see a sportsman in a wheelchair. He had given up ever walking again and had begun training to take part in the Paralympics for the physically handicapped. He was healed and never won a gold, silver or bronze medal. Rather, he became a walking trophy to the glory of God. I see the West African tribal chief who in an official ceremony gave me the key to his entire kingdom for the duration of our campaign. The subsequent campaign results were indescribable. I see the pastor of an African church. While I was upstairs preaching during the service in a room below, a man who had been dead for three days returned to life. I see a traffic jam on a dusty road in Central Africa. The people got out of their cars and quickly discovered us on our way to a crusade. They wanted to hear the gospel. Now, how could I refuse? I gave them the ABC of faith. And there, in the middle of total gridlock, 75 people found Jesus as their Savior. As the traffic jam broke up, we discovered that a bus had crashed and 11 people had been killed, causing the delay. On that dusty African road, a few went into an uncertain eternity, but 75 others were snatched from the jaws of hell. Praise be to God. Each of these stories deserves a showcase in the book of my life. How do I bring it to a close? I am reminded of the way the Apostle John closed his book on the life of Jesus. Speaking of all the noteworthy things Jesus had done, he said, If they could be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. To which I add my own. Amen. So again I ask, which thread will provide the finishing touch in the tapestry of my life. I think that perhaps this tapestry should become a mantle, such the mantle of Elijah, which was passed to the young prophet Elisha. 
With it, the young man struck the waters of the river Jordan and cried, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And the waters parted for him just as they had parted for Elijah. I would love to tell a final story that inspires you to strike out into the harvest fields of the world, crying, Where is the God of Bonky? I know that the waters he parted for me, he will part for you. And with that in mind, I see a simple scene from long ago that will complete this tapestry. On May 1, 1959, I went to my knees with an open Bible. Twelve days earlier, I had turned 19 years of age, my heart ablaze with the fire of the Holy Spirit. My sole desire was to preach the gospel, but my father would not allow me to stand in his pulpit. When the subject came up, he would quote scripture. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This passage came from the book of Lamentations, which seemed well named to my way of thinking. These words certainly became my lament. My father made it clear that my call to preach should be born in quiet faith that God alone would open the door. While I could do no less than agree with scripture, in my heart I wondered if my father was applying it properly to me. So, on the morning of May 1, 1959, I found myself on my knees because I had been asked to preach in Berlin. Large camps of East German refugees were in desperate need and I was invited to come for the duration of the summer. The plight of these hurting people reminded me of our four years in the prison camp in Denmark. But... I had to stop and ask myself, was this a door God had opened for me or a temptation to rebel against my father? What of lamentations? What of quiet hope and bearing the yoke in my youth? Before I said yes or no, I would first need to hear clearly from above. And so I poured out my heart to the Lord in prayer. As I did so, my eyes fell across a passage in the open Bible before me, a verse from the Psalms of David. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto you. Now my thoughts entered the correct path. This question could not be answered by my father, nor could it be answered by the voice of Jeremiah, crying from the book of Lamentations, nor from the blessed Psalm of David in the Bible before me. It was a matter between me and God alone, even though I was merely a boy of 19. God had called me to preach. Was this request from the refugee camps in Berlin also his call to me? It is not easy for a boy to separate the voice of his heavenly father from the voice of his earthly father, especially when the boy's father is a preacher, a man of God. As I quieted my heart before the Lord, I heard his voice saying, Go to Berlin and preach the gospel. With these words, I flew from the nest of family and home and never looked back with longing. I gladly accepted the invitation to preach. This began a life of following the Lord's call and obeying his voice above all others. 
Today I'm stepping into my 56th year of ministry. I have been privileged to see nearly 74 million souls raise their hands to receive Jesus. What if I had never separated my father's voice from the voice of God? What if I had never obeyed the Lord's call to me? I must believe that God would have raised another servant up who would listen and obey, and those 74 million souls would have responded to that man's invitation. But I do not have the luxury of knowing that for certain. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel, is what the Apostle Paul said. The harvest continues today because I still find myself on my knees as I did as a boy of 19, saying, Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, and he is faithful to lead me. As I write this chapter, I have just returned from a crusade in a remote part of northern Nigeria. We preached to a largely Muslim population in an area that has been ignored by other evangelists. It has no fine hotel, no airstrip. We drove for four hours through hot dusty terrain to get there. For the last 70 miles, our motorcade was greeted with people walking the roadsides. They waved and shouted, Bonky, Bonky, as we passed. I shouted back at them, Jesus, Jesus. At our destination, the local emir welcomed us with an embrace, saying that he had waited long for the day that we would bring the gospel to his area. Imagine that. A Muslim welcoming the gospel preacher with an embrace. The state governor did the same. The people of this region are poor villagers, and they gathered from many miles around to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, so grateful that we were there. I grew up as the overlooked child in the Bonke family, and God used that pain to sensitize my heart to the overlooked people of the world. I know God loves the little nobodies, those whose names no one ever will celebrate. He has given me a heart to preach to the poor on the continent of Africa and in other parts of the world. In this campaign in Nigeria, God drew these unknown precious souls to himself in astonishing numbers. We saw 2.4 million attend through five nights of preaching. In our morning fire conferences, 65,000 ministers and workers came together from Anglican, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, and charismatic congregations, to name a few. These believers did not allow theological difference to separate them. They were ignited with the power of the Holy Spirit to help us reap a harvest. The fire conference trainees registered nearly 60% of those who attended each night as new converts. That amounted to 1.4 million new believers in Jesus Christ in the series of meetings alone. Hallelujah! Each convert gave their name and address for follow-up. They received a salvation booklet and directions to a suitable church. Each of our 65,000 workers has at least 21 new believers to follow up in that area. They will be busy in the harvest for days and even weeks ahead.
we are constantly asked how we reach such a fantastic level of ministry. I tell those who ask that no amount of technique or expertise can account for it. I remind them that I started as a zero standing on the street corner with an accordion. When I began my ministry, I simply did what I could do. Not much happened by comparison, but being a Christian is not the art of the possible. It is the art of the impossible. I kept going forward, and one day I was staggered by the response. After 100 years of prayer for revival by godly generations, we in Africa began to see the breakthrough they had sought. It came with a flood of salvations and miracles, like another chapter written in the book of Acts. As David wrote, By my God, I have leaped over a wall. That is the key. What we see happening through Christ for all nations is by my God. So how do I write a final chapter? First I look back, remembering the debt I owe to Louis Graf. He came to Tunz in 1922 in the power of the Holy Spirit. In a land choked by dead religion, he carried the fire that brought healing to August Bonke. I did not know him, nor did I know my grandfather. The story might have ended there. However, that same power of the Holy Spirit was present several years later at the Pentecostal Church in Königsberg. My father Hermann was healed of tuberculosis and was converted. After World War II, the Holy Spirit's fire that Dad brought to Glückstadt and Kempe schooled me in the art of hearing and obeying the still small voice of God. Preaching that summer in Berlin as a 19-year-old, I began to run the race, and every day that has followed has been a great adventure. Every young minister of the gospel must eventually be ordained. After passing through a trial period, it is customary for the elders of the church to conduct a ceremony of recognition for a young candidate. My father's denomination put me through the process by which official hands were laid upon me and the prayer of ordination was given. I received a certificate and was officially recognized as a full-time minister. Looking back, I am aware that I received another ordination not arranged by the church. Rather, it was arranged by my Heavenly Father, and it muttered far more in every way. After finishing Bible college in Wales, I wandered aimlessly through London until I found myself standing at the home of that great evangelist, George Jeffreys. I now understand that it had not been by accident that I found myself at his doorstep. He was perhaps the greatest evangelist in England since John Wesley. I had no way of knowing at the time that this great apostle was merely days away from his appointment with death. I opened the little garden gate and climbed the porch stairs. Hesitating for a time at the door, I finally lifted my hand to knock. George's great voice rumbled from the inside. Let him in. He laid his feeble hands on my head and cried out from the depth of his soul, 
passing the button of the gospel to me. The longer I live, the more I know it. Have you watched a relay race? These are especially exciting events in Olympic track and field competition. Each runner must run alone as fast as he can. But in order to win the race, the lone runner must suddenly become a team member, running stride for stride with the next runner in order to successfully pass the baton. It is the constant switch between individual effort and team effort that defines this event. Everything is won or lost in the exchange. Looking back, I see that Louis Graf, the evangelistic lawnmower, passed the torch to August Bonke. Eventually, God brought about the passing of the torch to my father, Herman. George Jeffries was given the divine appointment to meet me and pass along the mantle to link up with former generations of evangelists. Then Dad and I run stride for stride through the years of my practicum in Kempe before I sped away to Africa and eventually saw the days of the combine harvester. Today, I'm still running with the gospel calling that I am reaching forward with the same baton in my hand, looking for the next runner to take it. In the meantime, I have been able to successfully pass my gospel baton to a young man whose name is Daniel Colenda. He has become the leader of the Christ for All Nations team and is storming forward to the finish line. He grabbed that baton and runs with it. He carries the same anointing with the same fire and fervency and has already led many millions of souls into the arms of Jesus. I rejoice and thank God for it from the bottom of my heart. So you may ask, am I handing the button to this young man as Louis, August, George and my father handed it to me? Is he the next runner? Yes, but honestly, that next runner is also you. If you have read my story this far, then you know that this calling is for every believer, no matter how gifted or how limited. You may be a housewife, a grocery clerk, a policeman, a teacher, a student, a secretary, a delivery person, a fry cook, a pastor, an executive. Look in the mirror. The Great Commission is for you. If you belong to Jesus, God is preparing a platform for you. He will gather your crowd, great or small, from one lost soul to a desperate crowd of millions. It does not matter. The message is the same. If you know Jesus, you know it as well as I do. We are running stride for stride now. Here is the button. Take it and run your race. Can you see the day of harvest that lies before you? The revival flame is igniting across the southern hemisphere, once called the third world, and now into India, China, and the ocean islands. Christ is striding through the earth. Mere religious forces have no answer for him. He is our message. Scoffers say, why does the African harvest not happen in Europe or America? I say, why not in Europe and America? The ground is never too hardened. 
Africa for two centuries did not yield a harvest, though the noblest of God's servants sowed the seed there. The dark continent became the graveyard of Christian workers more difficult than America or Europe today. But in our time, we have seen the tide shift, as it has also shifted in South America and the Orient. If the tide can shift there, it can also rise like a great tsunami to overflow America and Europe once again. I believe it. Dare to believe it with me. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm Reinhard Bonnke. I would like to pray for you at the end of this book. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for my brother, for my sister, the present reader. And I pray that your Holy Spirit may touch them and that they may be kicked into gear, kicked into the harvest fields of God where laborers are desperately needed. I pray that you may remove all fear of man and fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let their spirit, soul, and body become a riverbed for the Holy Spirit as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. This has been Living a Life of Fire, written and read by Reinhard Bonnke. Copyright 2015 by Reinhard Bonnke. Production Copyright 2015, Harvester Services, Inc.